Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Batman Nightcast, the proud member of the Fire & Water podcast network that chronicles the legendary comic book adventures of the Dark Knight Detective. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And we have come to the epic finale of Steve Englehart's run on Detective Comics that we started earlier this year when we saved this podcast from oblivion by changing the format. That's right, we're covering Detective Comics issues 475 and 476, which features one of the most famous plots in Batman's 81-year history, and concludes the story arc that Englehart has been telling us with artists Marshall Rogers, Terry Austin, Walt Simonson, and Al Milgram. Chris, in a way, (laughs) we have been building up to this for a while, like basically since uh, phase two of Batman Nightcast. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm always ready to talk about these stories. Well, then, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to push pause on that. <laughs> uh, because before we dive into these stories, we have, um, well, as J. David Weeder pointed out on Facebook, we've got some stuff to talk about. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, the, t- the day that we were recording this, the morning, uh, DC's Fandome event was yesterday. And I will be honest, I did not know what this event was. Like, I had heard that they were doing something, some sort of multimedia event, and I kind of blocked it out. I was just, I, I it didn't have the headspace for it. I've been thinking about other things. I also mistakenly thought it was going to be more comic book focused and centric, and then when Warner Brothers announced that they were slashing DC's, like, staff and, and, and output by, like, a third or, or, or something like that, I was like, all right, I... That's going to be kind of an awkward thing to do to have like a fan event talking about the future of your of your books and your publishing history like your company when you're announcing massive layoffs that's nah possibly in bad taste. I I didn't know that it was going to be or at least the, the part of it that we saw yesterday was going to be so much focused on the or like other movies that they've got in the pipe or the the HBO Max stuff that's going on. Uh, so that kind of blindsided me once I start seeing trailers and sneak peeks for all of these things. Um, which one do you want to do first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we could go with the news that leaked out, like it leaked out Friday before the fandom, which which we joked about. I joked about. I, I won't bring anybody else to this. I joked with the Fire and Water guys in our in our Facebook message group that fandom may now be literally Thunderdome, where <laughs> former DC employees you know fight to the death to see if they can get their job back, which is not funny because people lost their jobs. But at the same time, the fact that they held this event after AT and T Warner's went through and massacred the company is mm-hmm. is is still a little in poor taste, I think. But you know, I. It is what it is. I mean, I, I I feel for everyone affected by the the what you know the the Warner uh, what Warner brother what, what the Warner new brothers DC implosion basically the new I the new DC implosion yeah because I mean you know and I mean whole division I mean DC Direct the whole division was shut down which is just like wow yeah but but now getting back to staying trying to stay on the positive side of what they put out well maybe it's positive we'll talk about it but uh, yeah there was some news leaked out. Um, uh, Friday afternoon, we've got more Batman than we can shake a stick at, man. I tell you, <laughs> the three Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess what you're referring to is the news that the Flashpoint movie that they keep saying is going to happen. Months ago, they had said they were going to bring Michael Keaton back for that movie. 
Now they're saying it will also feature Ben Affleck's version of Batman. Right, right. Yeah, and by the third Batman, we'll get to the third Batman later. But yes, uh, yeah, Ben Affleck is apparently coming back as Batman, despite the fact that he seemed so depressed in, on the press tour for BVS and, you know, was kind of checked out during Justice League. <laughs> He's coming back as Batman, apparently. <laughs> so go figure. So what do you what do you think about that? I don't like it. I don't. I, I also. <laughs> I don't care. I Ben Affleck was fine as Batman, but the I hated the movie. I hated BBS. I hated Justice League. I don't like this particular version of Batman, so I'm not interested in seeing him back. I don't want to see two different actors playing the same Batman role competing for screen time in a Flash movie. I, and I don't like the Flashpoint storyline. I don't want to see that. I mean. I don't know what's going to happen here because Ezra Miller kind of got in trouble early, a couple of months ago, I think, and I don't know what they wanted to do with this, but I just don't care. This whole project, the more I hear about it, I'm like, I don't, I don't care. And also, I think as as our buddy Nathaniel Wayne pointed out, this movie has had twenty different writers and directors attached to it. They've been talking about this for years, and it's like, okay, you know, you can keep saying that you're working on it, but until we actually see something, I'm not convinced it's ever going to happen. Right. I, I I saw this news and I'm like, well, okay, that's another thing that I'm not going to watch. I just I have no interest in this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm mixed on Affleck. I I think he did a good job with what he was given. I did not care for where they took Batman and BVS at all, and I don't feel it was earned because his first portrayal of Batman was Batman at his most extreme and and even more ex- yeah, honestly even more extreme than where Frank Miller took him in The Dark Knight, which is you know. We all know Snyder's in love with Frank Miller's work. So, you know, and then and then when they dialed him back into a more traditional Batman and at the end of BBS all of a sudden and then Justice League, it it seemed forced. So I, I, I really don't know what to think of Ben Affleck's Batman. Visually, he looks great, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, he looks like a, a Bruce Wayne type, you know. So, I mean, it works. But like I said, I, I'm, I'm fine with what he did. You know, I'm fine with what he did with what he was given. Uh, but I, I really don't know how to feel. I mean, I actually thought, and I'm not a huge fan of the first Suicide Squad movie. I feel it's, it's an, it's, it's a, you know, if it's a brainless action movie with some superhero characters in it. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's like those one of those movies I used to rent with my buddies, like uh, you know, from the video store in the late '80s, just some actioner with, uh, but it's got a, you know, a, bi- a bigger cast and you know, comic book characters in it, basically. Uh, but. You know, the few scenes that Affleck's Batman in that, he doesn't say anything. He just he shows up and does his job and disappears. I thought he was pretty cool in that. So, I mean, it's it's uh, it's weird. I don't know what to think, but I'm with you. It's like, again, they're, it, it, it's not earned. Like, when, when, when the MCU has these, like, Captain America Civil War can become an Avengers movie because, you know, Captain America is an integral part of the Avengers and the universe has been built. And so that can happen. You know, Flash has appeared in one whole movie and one brief cameo in a Suicide Squad movie. And now you're dumping this universe building stuff in his first solo movie. I, I it's just it's weird. It, it I, I, you know, I, there's a part of me that's kind of interested to see where they go. But I'm I'm with you and Nathaniel. I, I wonder if this thing will ever get made. <laughs> so. Well, so then the next thing I think chronologically, the next thing I remember seeing drop was they did release a trailer for the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, the people who have been wanting this, who have been clamoring this, who have been 
obnoxious about it. You know, I, I hope they like the movie. I, I'm, I'm going to try and, and say, uh, you know, if you want to see this, I hope it's good for your sake. Um, or, I'm not going to say I hope it's good. I hope you like it. I hope you get what you wanted. Um, I thought the trailer looked terrible. Well, I, I should say that. The trailer looked more of the same that we've gotten from Zack Snyder for his movies. And I think his vision of this world is fucking terrible. I hate it. <laughs> his movies, the way he has been doing these, it, like it's just visually, it turns me off. It, there's like something I find kind of repulsive just about his visual style. It's the same thing like when I look at a comic by Rob Liefeld or Jim Lee. I don't like that. I don't like the way it's rendered. It's drawn. It turns me off. It makes me want to close the book. I do the same thing when I see his style, his visual like way for this world. Like I'm like, no, I like something. Like I physiologically reject it, um, and then the opening shot has Dark Side swinging this you know battle axe or something. I'm like, okay, you don't get Jack Kirby's version of Dark Side. You have no idea who these characters are. And one of my other friends was like, I don't have any idea who Dark Side is, so I don't know why it's supposed to be a big deal that we're getting Dark Side in this movie instead of Steppenwolf. He's like, I didn't know who Steppenwolf was either. Um, I thought I thought it looked like more of the same. I thought it looked bad. It, like the okay, so now Superman is in it, but he's in black instead of red and blue. That isn't appealing to me. Uh, as we, as we joked about in our group, the fact that he's going back to the well of the Leonard Cohen song "Hallelujah" again, when the last time we saw it was during a very forced—not I mean, not like forced sex scene, but just like a sex scene that was like really in your face in the mm-hmm. Watchmen movie, um, and it just seemed like. The thing I hate about him is like with when he drops his musical cues, it's like, how clever am I for using this song at this moment? And it's, oh, I just, oh, I, I hate, I, I, like the more I learn about him and his behavior and his attitude towards this whole thing, I understand where he's coming from, but I think he's a dickhead and obnoxious, and the way the fans have been acting about this and clamoring for this. I, I think their behavior has been pretty bad. A lot of, I'm not saying not everybody who wants to see a Snyder Cut, but a lot of the fans, like when Warner Brothers would tweet out that the wife of one of their executives had passed away from cancer or something like that, and that tweet is barraged by people saying, release the Snyder Cut. It's like, screw oh. you people, you don't deserve anything that you want. Go to hell. <laughs> oh, Those God. are the people that I'm pissed off at. But the other people right. are just like, you know what, we like the movie, we want to see more of the movie, we feel that Zack Snyder was done wrong. Okay, you have an argument. I hope you like the movie. I'm never gonna watch this. I don't care about it. So, I, you know, I, I wasn't. It looked more like the movie that you know I, I thought we'd get uh, when when Justice League was gonna come out before all the news broke that Whedon was coming in and and finishing it up. I mean, it, it's it. I'm not particularly excited for it. Um, the parts of Justice League I liked were more than likely probably things that that Whedon did and I, you know and I know now Whedon of course is in his own mess of trouble with with a- accusations and allegations and everything but but uh but you know I mean his his uh you know I'm more in line with his take on superhero superhero films than than uh, Snyder's uh, so the parts of Justice League that I actually enjoyed, even though it was very uneven and felt like it was literally you know two two different movies super glued together. I, you know, I, I probably enjoyed that part better. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. I'm like, you know, it's like I, I feel like, I, I feel like, you know, Zack Snyder. You know, I, I wish as a director he'd be just, you know, kind of like, look, guys, I've, I've moved on. It's time to move on. My, my time with this property's over. 
But like you said, uh, when we were talking privately, why would he? You know, he's he's basically, you know, he's gotten more publicity out of this than probably anything he's ever done because it's it's not completely unheard of, but it's pretty unheard of, especially usually when a, a director gets to come back and and do a director's cut of a movie. It's decades later. You know, it's a Rid- Ridley Scott comes in and gets to fix Blade Runner sometime in the 2000s or something, you know, or Richard Donner gets movie, his Donner. Usually cut. it's with a, when a movie was successful. Right, right. Justice or, or at least somehow successful. Yeah. Justice League lost Warner Brothers $150 million. That's how much they lost after basically shooting the movie twice, having two different production teams and directors on it, and all the marketing and publicity, they lost $150 million. That's how much it costs to make a Wonder Woman movie. So the fact yeah. that they, they're willing to spend more money on this movie to release it on a streaming platform that I have no idea how they're going to j- judge whether or not this is a success, I think this sets a terrible precedent for... Other filmmakers who have bad movies and now blame studio interference and and get their fans like to support them, and I think it sends a terrible precedent for the fan base that that championed this and now feels like they were like they got what they wanted, and now oh god the the Disney haters are going to come out like even more forceful about getting Disney to redo a reboot of the Last Jedi and stuff like that. I just yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's a very strange. It's very strange that they're making such a big deal out of a movie that was a, a box office bomb and not and not even critically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, appraised well. So, yeah, it's 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 really it's really weird. I, You know, I'm, I'm not going to be in any hurry to. I, yeah, I still haven't watched the ultimate cut of, of BBS. I've got it. I bought it like super cheap at Walmart after Black Friday. <laughs> I don't I've never watched it. So I, I'm probably not going to be in any hurry to watch this. I didn't think it looked horrible. I thought it looked like a Zack Snyder DC movie again, which is not my cup. It's just not my cup of tea. I'm not going to say it's poorly made or anything like that. It's just, it's you know, similar to what you said. I don't hate it as much as you do. I don't think, but I'm not. I'm ready to this guy to for this guy to move on to other projects, basically. (laughs) But I don't know if he's going to now because. Who knows? He might get. He might be back in the fold, especially if this is perceived as going over well. You yeah, know, then yeah, this, I mean, he, D- he, DC he might, might be say back we in. Were wrong to fire him and look at look at how much the fans want him, and they might green, give him more of more. I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, there there were a few other movies that we didn't get full trailers for, but we got some information. Um, they finally talk about the Black Adam movie starring The Rock, and apparently. Because they need more to go into that movie, I, I've always thought it was a it was a dumb idea to have that movie anyway. Um, but uh, maybe they realize that they don't have a whole lot of there there because now they're saying that that movie will include the Justice Society of America and it's going to include the characters of Hawkman, Doctor Fate, Adam Smasher, and maybe somebody else. And I heard that news and I was like, ah, oh, this sounds pretty much like they're going to the whole. Kondak subplot from JSA and 52, and who was in charge of that again? Oh, Jeff Johns. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm just like, why didn't they just make The Rock as Black Adam the villain in the next Shazam movie? I, I just, I do not, I do not get the love for Black Adam ever since Johns made Black Adam like, you know, I'm going to make him DC's Namor and I'm going to make him even more popular than Namor. It's like, it, it, you know, I just, it, I, that's just Jeff Johns again, his love affair with making the villains the hero. 
it's like, my God, Jeff, can you not do this? At least one franchise you're involved in, one title you're involved in. You know, I mean, I would, you know, I would love to see Zachary Levi go up against The Rock in a Shazam movie. But you know, and I mean, in the little trailer we saw, we see um, the old wizard Shazam. We see him like a. It's not. It's not. It's artwork that looks. I can't think of the actor's name that played uh, Shazam, um, but it's 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 he, clearly him, mm-hmm. and, and 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 he's in. You know, it's it's all this uh, concept artwork that they've slightly animated, kind of like the old Marvel superheroes. Yeah, <laughs> cartoons <laughs> just looks better. Mm-hmm. But you know, you see him, and you know, so you know it's connected. Obviously, it's connected still in the movie, connected to Shazam. Now, I don't know if Zachary Levi is going to show up in a cameo or what what's going to go on, but it's like. Shazam made made them pretty good money. You know, it was successful. It, I think it was well liked by most people. Just do a freaking Shazam sequel with Black Adam as the villain. You know, I mean, well, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> we got a few little things for the Suicide Squad, the sequel that I don't think anybody asked for, but they, they <laughs> were giving it to us anyway. Uh, and they put James Gunn on it at the time that after he would been fired by Disney and Marvel. Um, which made a lot of people's kind of ears perk up. They're like, well, okay. Um, and I admit, like, I had zero interest in this until they were like, James Gunn, I was like, oh, well, I really liked Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, so maybe. Um, they gave us the roll call where they basically announced the cast with little animatics to talk about. He's got, like, 20 different characters in this movie. I'm imagining, like, 12 to 15 of them will be dead by the time the, the credits roll. A lot of obscure characters, a lot of like funny characters. You know he's having fun picking this cast uh, and the actors. But I don't know. They they did like their their sneak peek. Their I, I don't know. Like behind the scenes featurettes like that rarely do anything for me. I need to know a little bit more about the tone from the trailer. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to see this or not. We'll see. Uh, my interest was piqued in this because it's it's James Gunn and. I'll be honest, when I saw John Cena dressed as Peacemaker, I'm like, holy crap, that's pretty cool. And he's like, oh, he's pretty much a douchebag version of Captain America. (laughs) I got got that, you know, and I'm like, okay, I like that. I mean, because they can, because James Gunn can take, can take that character and make him insufferable, but fun, you know, I mean, so I'm kind of. I, you know, just the fact that they did his, his helmet's not quite as doofy as they sometimes drew it, but he's got the, he's got the costume on straight from the comics with that damn helmet. And it's just like, okay, you, you, you got me. It's, you know, it, I, I'm interested in the one guy, I can't think of his name that's in Ant-Man and, and he was in the dark Knight. Oh yeah. Damien uh, Dusmalkin playing Polka Dot Man. <laughs> Polka Dot Man. Yeah. And, and, and Danny was in there when I was watching that. She's like, is that Polka Dot Man? Because of the Lego Batman movie. Oh, you know? yes, yeah. It's just like, I'm like, yep. And, and uh, yep, that's Polka Dot Man. I mean, that, and there's a caval- the, the uh, uh, not the Cavalier, but the, the Javelin. The Javelin's <laughs> in there. It's like the freaking Javelin in his yellow and, and blue costumes, like verbatim from the comic books. Mongol's it's like daughter, the only one that. Mongol's daughter Mongal is in it, yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. It's like, and they look just like the comic books. Mm-hmm. The only one that doesn't is Harley Quinn. She doesn't look a damn thing like the comic books at this point. Actually, actually, <laughs> I thought they had recast Rick Flag until I saw like that roll call when it was like Joel Kinnaman. I was like, no, it's the same guy. They just totally changed. They made him look like the comics. They gave him the yellow shirt. They gave him the blonde hair. Like this, he's like clean shaven. I was, yeah. I was surprised. I thought it was a different actor, but. Yeah, so there's like there's there's uh, Harley, him, and Boomerang coming back, I guess, from the from mm-hmm. the first movie. So, and, you know, and like I said, I did not hate the Suicide Squad movie. I kind of just, you know, 
I forgot it as soon as I walked out of the theater, but for a, you know, just a, a dumb action movie, it was fine. You know, it, it had DC characters in it. I, I, you know, I, I, it was okay, but I mean, with James Gunn behind it, I'm I'm definitely more interested. I did think it was funny. It was like this is the most fun I've ever had making a movie, and blah blah blah. And I'm thinking, I wonder what Marvel and Disney think about him saying that. <laughs> They've got to say that. I don't take anything, but I I mean, yeah, yeah, I, they got to say that. I had a horrible time making this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it, it very well may be true. Maybe I mean, Warner Brothers did give him a much longer leash than Disney ever did. I'm sure Disney is very controlling of their properties. So. Maybe maybe that's being true, but I mean I don't take that as a they they've got to say so exciting things like that to promote their work, yeah. So right, right, yeah. But yeah, it looks it looks interesting. I'll I'll give them that. Yeah. Uh, we got the full trailer for Wonder Woman 1984, which I don't think gives much more than the teaser did. It showed more footage, but in terms of the tone and the story, I think the the teaser gave us pretty much the same amount of content and. I loved the teaser for the movie. Um, mm-hmm. I loved the way that it was cut. I loved the style. I loved the color, everything that she was doing. I really loved that epic version of the New Order song and the music pumping throughout that teaser. Mm-hmm. So when we came to this one, I was like, uh, I, I felt like this one was a letdown. It didn't give me anything new. It didn't have a strong of a punch. And it showed the cheetah, and I'm not crazy about her look. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean... This was one. This was a movie that I thought I might see, just depending on like the 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 ads for it. And the teaser really blew me away, but this one didn't. So I'm kind of iffy on this one. I don't know. Yeah, I you know I I, I it was kind of I'm kind of with you. I, I didn't like it as well. I didn't think the cheetah looked bad. I thought she could look. You know, I was kind of relieved that she didn't look bad because I didn't know I didn't know what she was going to look like. And of course, you know, leave it to uh, Lego. They already kind of ruined the fact that you know we were going to see a full-on cheetah, cheetah, you know, animalistic wear cheetah character, which we pretty much knew, honestly. But you know, they could have went the, you know, the the golden age or you know bronze age route of a a woman in a costume. I guess. Which is my. I mean, I I love the character of Cheetah, and that is my favorite version. Is the one that looks like she's just wearing like kind of like a cheetah costume. I love the way Alex Ross did it in Justice, where she like have like a ritual sacrifice of her pets and like sewed their skin onto her. I thought that was creepy and and but also kind of weirdly beautiful. I've always liked that version of the character more than the Barbara Minerva one that's just a werewolf cheetah version or something like that. But Yeah. Uh, maybe it's because I would rather see Tigra in a Marvel movie than this version of Cheetah, but we'll <laughs> we'll we'll see. I mean, maybe maybe it'll look good. I mean I, I think the worst part of the first Wonder Woman movie was the big boss fight during the last act. So Oh it definitely was. If yeah. they can improve that, because it it does it certainly kinda looks like we're gonna get another big boss CGI fight in the last act. If this one looks better, maybe that'll maybe it'll step up. Well, I I do get to you know why they you know Kristen Wiig was it, it seems like they cast her uh, the 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 point in this trailer was made basically that uh, a plain Jane type woman who is basically re- rebelling against the overly gorgeous Gal Gadot Wonder Woman basically you know uh, I kind of got that so almost uh you know almost a Silver Swan meets Cheetah kind of mm. storyline mm. you know. So they kind of melded some aspects of the Silver Swan character into her, certainly. Which Kristen Wiig, of course, is is not a is not by any means an ugly duckling, but she's more of a a, a, 
you know, average girl next door type look compared to, to compared to Gal Gadot. So, so it kind of, it kind of makes sense, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, the casting of her makes more sense now. Plus of course she's a good actress and everything, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't as pumped for it, but I thought it was funny. I did like Steve, uh, Steve's line at the end, uh, Chris Pine's, uh, so does everybody parachute now? You know? <laughs> parachute, yeah. Oh, those wacky 1980s. <laughs> yep. Actually, I, I showed the trailer to, to Angie last night, and she's like, so how is he back? How is he alive? I was like, I don't know. I think it probably has something to do with the villain's plot of giving people what they wish. There might be magic involved. She's like, well, is it just like drugs or something? Like, she's, like, is it, she's like, maybe it's not drugs. I was like, yeah, probably. And then later on at the end, she's like, so she's riding the lightning with her lasso i'm like yeah yeah she's like that also seems like it could be drugs like like cocaine and like, i was like i i bet cocaine is probably the big thing about this movie that explains everything well it's the 80s so yeah, yeah it could exactly. be yeah she they listened to way too much metallica with riding the lightning i guess <laughs> i don't know <laughs> all right just a few more things um not a movie but we did get a trailer for the next batman video game which is batman gotham knights well, the setup is that Bruce Wayne has been killed. Uh, the Wayne, Wayne Manor has been destroyed, and he sets out this code black message to all of his, you know, the, the surrogates, the family. So you get to play as Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, or Barbara Gordon uh, in their various kind of identities as Nightwing, Red Hood, Robin, Batgirl. Uh, and then I guess the Court of Owls is involved in this. Possibly they're the ones that killed Batman. Um, I saw the trailer. I was like, okay, this looks more of like the the same Arkham games that I've played before. I was like, this looks like it could be kind of fun in that world. I don't like the messages sending that basically like the focusing on the sort of militarization that this is a war on crime and we have to be good soldiers and all the. It's like, all right, God, to take take your foot off the off the gas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then I just like I saw that and like the the comments coming after everybody was like we wanted a Batman game and you don't let us play Batman this is BS and like people are losing their mind because it's a Batman game without Batman I was like you guys really think that Batman is dead and you're not going to be able to play Batman by the end of this game chill the hell out <laughs> yeah exactly or you know some, one of them doesn't become Batman yeah, you know yeah, not, exactly. Nightwing doesn't be Dick doesn't become Batman or 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 some yeah I thought Andrew was pumped for it he played all the Arkham games and. Of course, he's a huge Robin Nightwing fan, and he was happy that it was Tim and not Damien. And of course, I am too, because the, any chance we can get to like just expunge Damien from existence, I'm all for, because uh, I hate him. Uh, but, but and you can write me, and you, know, you can comment. Oh, there's good Damien stories, blah blah blah. I'm sure there are. I don't care. <laughs> this is the hill I choose to die on. I hate Damien, uh, <laughs> and I hate Jason as Red Hood. So this is uh, these are our two little things. Okay, well, I I don't I don't totally hate Jason as Red Hood, but I really hate Damien. I I I could do without Jason as Red Hood, but uh, I did like that animated movie that they did, the first one. And now they now they've got the sequel coming out where you can choose which way things go, which is kind of funny. But <laughs> but I think I think bringing him back as Red Hood is interesting for one story. If right. you make him the a recurring character, then no, then it's no. No. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, they should have, you know, they they should have like you know killed him off. Of course, if they kill him off, they'll still bring him back. They but they shouldn't have given him his own title, you know. <laughs> so so yeah. But I thought you know I, you know that's <laughs> I'm watching that trailer and I'm like, why don't they just make a movie that looks like this? You know, <laughs> just I mean they could just make a you know it's really surprising that they have not tried to do. 
uh, a CG, you know, animated, you know, movie, uh, not direct to video, whatever, but a theatrical movie and, and just and just try it that way. You know, I mean, I, I don't get it, but OK. But yeah, it, it looks it looks like a good game. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't particularly care for the, the it's basically a combat game with with superhero characters in it. But, you know, that's. Uh, we'll get into that. That affects some other things too. It's uh, probably the last thing we're going to talk about. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we did finally get the first teaser for the Batman. Uh, this is the Matt Reeves movie starring uh, Robert Pattinson as the Dark Knight. Uh, what did you think? You know, I liked it. I it it looks very Nolan esque. It looks very dark. Yeah, I did like the fact that. Much like the comics we're going to talk about in a minute, Batman's just standing in a room full of policemen, which was kind of that was kind of nice. Uh, but but uh, I liked what I saw, except for one scene with a the guy. I guess they're like a gang of jokers, like they're almost like Batman Beyond. They're you know literally a gang of Joker followers. You know they it's like what the who the hell are you supposed to be? And Batman just beats the hell out of this guy and he takes him down, but then he stops and then crouches down and pounds on him some more. And he says, I'm vengeance, you know, which I, 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 if he took him down and said, I'm vengeance, I'd be fine. But the extra beating is what we've talked about. The overly brutal bone crushing Batman. I'm sick of that. I hope this does. I hope that's the only scene in this movie like that. And it's just to show, you know, it's a, it's a show of force to show don't mess with me. So I don't have to do this again type thing. Um, you know, it, so it, his 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 legend can spread amongst the underworld, and you know he doesn't have to go about like you know being this brutal uh, because I, I'm I'm done with that. I'm, and I think in the times we live in, we don't need a Batman that just excessively beats the living hell out of people for you know once he takes them down. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's sending a bad message. Uh, so, and I'm sure that was filmed before the events of the last few months. Uh, because you know they quit filming, but at the same time, I don't know if I'd even put that in the trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, I t- it, it set off some alarm bells for me, and I'm just like, uh, no. Other than that, I liked what I saw. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting looking. Um, I'm trying to. I didn't hate it. I also can't say that I really liked it or loved it. I, I just kind of felt like this weird sort of, okay, this is a version of Batman, this is another version of Batman, you're going further along the, the, this route, and I don't know if this is the kind of Batman that I want to see, um, but this is certainly what we're getting. I agree the big turnoff was that the, the Batman, the brutalizer, um, when he just like goes, like it's like I'm like, that's the 20-point combo attack that you use in one of the video games. That scene looked like it was there to attract the people who like the, the Batman video games. Yeah. Um, so that, that part kind of bothered me. Um, I, I'm also trying to consider that they, he filmed, they had only filmed maybe 25, 30% of the movie. Um, so b- before they had to shut down, so you don't really get a through line or a narrative for this. It's just a collection of provocative looking scenes, uh, to kind of establish the tone, but not the plot. Um, cause I, like, I, I just, I, I couldn't follow like what the, what the story is. I I also couldn't, I had trouble hearing even the dialogue and the, and the voiceover. And I was like, it, it looks interesting, but it's just, I don't know. A, a friend of mine who is not in our community 
you know, texted me right afterwards, and he's like, did you see this? I was like, yeah. He's like, it looks badass. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he's like, he's like, it, he's like, it's dark and edgy. I'm like, we, that's all of the Batman movies have been dark and edgy. <laughs> he's like, he's like, no, no. I was like, yeah, except for the Joel Schumacher ones. If you go back to 1989, that was considered dark and edgy because it was a reaction. People were comparing it to Superman. And Batman Returns was darker and edgier than Batman. And then after the, the Joel Schumacher movies, Christopher Nolan brought it back to its roots by making Batman Begins dark and edgy. And Dark Knight was even more so. And then in Batman vs. Superman, you've got Batman branding people with an iron so they can get messed up in prison. It's like, yeah, that's pretty dark and edgy. You keep on moving the standard of what dark and edgy is, but the Batman movies are always going for that. I was like, so that description doesn't mean anything. So don't say you like it because it's dark and edgy. That's that's the easiest thing you can say about it. I was like, that's what they all are. So... I, yeah. I think you, you're just getting to a point where I don't want a dark and edgy Batman. Give me something else. I have heard, and the fact that he's going up against the Riddler, I have heard that this movie will explore more of Batman as a detective, which is the one thing that has been sorely missing throughout the Batman movies up to this point. And mm-hmm. I want to see that. If they can do something with that, cool. I mean, if I, I mean, th- this didn't turn me off. This didn't make me think I'm going to skip this movie, but... I'm just kind of ah, all right. Okay, this <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. I'll I'll be honest. I, I'm not. I'm I'm interested to see more of it, but at the same time, I just wish that we saw something different. You know, to me, uh, you know, try to make. And I mean, I know they're probably never going to make a you know a fun a fun fun Batman movie, but I think they can make a. I think they could make a Batman movie that um, you know that 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 has some darker elements, but also feels like it's just going to be a fun time at the movies and that i didn't get that from this you know i mean because the the scenes of pattinson you know i mean he's got his cowl off it i did think it was funny that you do see that he's got his his eye shadow <laughs> underneath his cowl so you know it's like he he admits that he wears eye. you know it's not like michael keaton like seconds before he rips the cowl off and batman returns he suddenly <laughs> doesn't have the the black makeup around his eyes but uh, but you know, I, I, I did, I did think that was kind of interesting, but there's all this is very brooding. It's even, it's even seems even more emo and brooding than the Nolan movies, you know, were. And, and I mean, you can argue that, you know, um, that, uh, Batman begins was a little, you know, it seems positively light now compared, look at, you know, just sure. looking at this, looking at this trailer, it seems, you know, positively light, you know, so it's like I, I feel I feel like especially after BVS just took us in such a dark place that I, I kind of wish we were just pulling out of it. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't I don't expect Adam West. I don't expect a Joel Schumacher movie. And I, I actually honestly don't really want that. But at the same time, I just wish they could figure out a way to to balance the, the darkness with a sense of fun. And let's go have a fun time at the movies, you know, but uh, I, I, and I think like when they talked to Matt Reeves, when they were getting him on, like he he said something to the effect, you know, like he, he wanted to do an, you know, uh, this deep psych, uh, this deep exploration, like that's of a psychologically broken and brooding person who puts on this costume and, and everything like that. And you imagine that sounds like a very appealing and interesting story. If you're a filmmaker who hasn't been reading that story for 30 years, right? Like, that, that, that's the thing. I'm like, okay, well, if if you only know Batman through the, maybe the the movies, maybe the cartoons or something like that, 
then, yeah, this would be an interesting take on Batman. But for those of us who have spent more than a quarter of a century following Batman's adventures, like, yeah, we got this story a long time ago. You're not giving us anything new. And we're kind of oversaturated with this type of Batman. At least that's how I'm feeling. So. Right. And I mean, I, and, I, and I did not watch it beyond the first few episodes, but honestly... With all the the villains in this movie running around, Catwoman, Penguin, Riddler, it 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 feels like a big budget version of Gotham in some ways too. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, it honestly, the Gotham TV series, so it it it, it just. <laughs> It had that feeling to it for me. Well, that reminds me. The other thing about this was Reeves has said that this movie takes place in Batman's second year. During the first year, that will be explored in an HBO Max series that he is developing. He's going to be producing this HBO Max series called Gotham PD. (laughs) Because we haven't had a TV show about the Gotham Police Department in a while. So that's just, it's going to be about like the, the corruption that leads to this, the corruption in the Gotham Police Department. And I was like, I don't want to see a TV show about a corru- about corrupt cops right now. What the hell are you guys doing? Like, <laughs> exactly. like, are you sure you want to do this? Is now really the time for this? But th- that's what they're doing. And uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's better than glamorizing the cops, perhaps for the tone of what's going on in society right now. But I just, I, I don't know if I want to see it. It's right. They just did a TV show called Gotham. Now it's got Matt Reeves producing, and the other showrunner is going to be the guy who did the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, which I really, really liked. So maybe it'll be good, but I, I don't know. It just yeah. seems. From the who asked for this department. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Any, anything else? Any other news bits that we need to address? No, I don't. I, that's all I got. Unless there was some stuff for at least late last night. Is that running into? We're recording this on the Sunday after the the Saturday where all this leaked. Is there anything today? Is it two day event now, or is it still was? Again, I have no idea because I wasn't paying attention to what this fan don't think was. I have no idea how long this thing is supposed to be. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah they're shutting the dome down now. I don't. I don't know. It's if like we, and it makes me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It makes if me we, think of convergence too because all the domes. Yeah. <laughs> if we miss some important piece of information, I'm sure people will tell us. Um, yeah. Well, I, that was a half an hour that I was expecting. So uh, let's take a promo break now. Uh, clear our heads and come back with Detective Comics 475. Don't go away. Annual Halloween party canceled. Haunted house shut down this season. Then come to the house party that no force can stop. The house of Frankenstein. The Supermates are throwing their annual bash no matter what and inviting some of your favorite horror stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Anyone who enters here without my permission will be considered a trespasser. Lionel Atwell. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Christopher Lee. Don't use long words, Inspector. They don't suit you. Evelyn Anchors. We haven't been able to contact Count Alucard so far. Peter Cushing. I've told you before there are times when you shouldn't be alone. Bela Lugosi. He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Barbara Shelley. There have been seven murders committed in the forest of Bandorf in the past five years. Basil Rathbone. But of course I know who did. Haven't you heard? The monster. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? And Boris Karloff. <laughs> Plus a few party crashers. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian, 
or a vampire. And some amazing friends. Dragon Wolfing! Let them take care of your friends, my dear. I'll take the robot. You take the wolf thing. Good. I've always had a way with animals. So RSVP to fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, or Spotify, and don't miss the one Halloween party you can count on to be scary in a good way. Not the 2020 way. The House of Frankenstein. Okay, we're back, and now we're going to actually talk comics. So, uh, Detective Comics number 475 was cover dated November 1978, on sale November 29th, 1977. In front of the face of a large wooden clock, the Batman approaches his arch enemy, the Joker. The clown prince of crime fast draws a pair of fish, hideously disfigured with his own rictus grin. Hands up, Batman! I've got you covered! The blurb reads, What is the secret of the Joker's new weapon? The Laughing Fish. What do you think of this one, Ryan? This cover is adorable. <laughs> I, I love this. This is like, this is like a, such a, a throwback, like like uh, 60s, like Silver Age comic cover or something like this. I, I just, I love it. This reminds me of something silly and goofy like that, but I love it. I, I think it's one of the best Rogers covers for this run. Um, I love his depiction of the Joker on this. The fish, everything is so wacky about this. This is just, I mean, this was the cover that was used for the uh, Legends of the Dark Knights uh, Marshall Rogers hardcover edition. So, and I think rightly so. This is such a fun one. Yeah, I, I, I really love it. It's it's pretty iconic, you know, of course the story is, but it's not as iconic as Neil Adams' Batman 251 mm-hmm. cover, The Joker's Five-Way Revenge. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It, it just, it's so absurd. And the look on the Joker's face as, you know, he's pulling these fish out. The clock's kind of an interesting thing because that scene doesn't, you know, happen in the in the book. But it also, you know, time is definitely on Joker's side and against Batman. So it makes sense. You know, everything everything's on a timetable. So, yeah, this is this is a great one. I love love all the wood grain uh, detailing, too. So, yeah, it's it's awesome. OK, so getting inside the laughing fish, uh, we have Steve Englehart as a writer. Marshall Rogers, penciler, Terry Austin, anchor, Ben Oda, letterer, Jerry Serpe, the colorist on the original version, and Julia Schwartz was the editor. An impending storm hangs over Gotham City as the Batman strikes a familiar pose, perched high above on a rooftop, scanning an adjacent building. But unlike most nights, the Cape Crusader hesitates before taking action. For this time, the mystery he's out to solve is far more personal than usual. He swings to the building and lets himself in the window of one Silver St. Cloud, wrapped in only a towel and apparently fresh from the shower. Silver is understandably stunned at the sight of her visitor, but Batman is gauging her reaction for more than just shock. He suspects Silver has deduced that Batman and her lover, Bruce Wayne, are one and the same. He asks her if she had something to tell him last night at the convention center, where she called out to him after witnessing his battle with Deadshot. What follows is an incredibly awkward conversation, where Silver assures Batman he's mistaken and denies having anything to say to him. The Dark Knight contemplates unmasking before her, but reconsiders when he questions whether she really knows or not. Silver then tells her unwanted caller that her date, Bruce Wayne, will soon be over to pick her up. Stonewalled and flummoxed, the Batman bids her adieu, and Silver drops to the floor. Silver is even more confused than her famous boyfriend. She knows now for certain, Bruce Wayne is the legendary Batman, but she couldn't bring herself to admit she penetrated the secret he has kept guarded for so many years. The phone rings, and on the other line is the voice of Bruce Wayne. 
From a nearby phone booth, Bruce and his Batman guys tell Silver he will be a bit late for their date. She takes the opportunity to ask for a raid check, feigning a headache. Hanging up the phone, Silver realizes she must have time to think, so she plans to leave Gotham. Batman swings through the city, lost in thought. Beneath his myriad masks, the real man beneath loves Silver St. Cloud. But the Batman's secrets are not shared lightly, since they protect himself and those he cares for from death. His thoughts are interrupted by a call for the police. He lands on a nearby wharf, responding to the frantic pleas of a group of local fishermen. They show him their latest catches, all of which bear the unmistakably ghastly grin of the Joker. The men ask Batman why the Joker would want to contaminate every fish in the area, but the masked manhunter can offer no reason, for reason need not apply to the sick mind of the Joker. The Joker fish phenomenon is not isolated to Gotham alone. On both the eastern and western seaboards of the U.S., Joker fish are caught by the boatload. The country awakens to news of the madman's plot. At noon, the Joker makes a spectacular entrance in the office of the Gotham City Copyright Commission. As his armed thugs hold the rest of the office workers at bay, the Ace of Knaves violently converses with department head G. Carl Francis about copywriting his now-famous fish. When Francis informs him that fish are a natural resource and no one can copyright them, the Joker threatens him. If he won't comply with his wishes, Francis will be dead by midnight. As the Joker and his gang leave, one of his goons asks one too many questions, causing his insane employer to push him in front of an oncoming truck. Across town at the Tobacconist Club, a very jumpy Rupert Thorne is startled by his councilman cohort, Marco. He informs Thorne their meeting is about to begin, and they are all eager to hear what Thorne's next moves will be against the Batman. Thorne heads into the restroom to get a hold of himself, but is startled by someone far scarier this time. The Joker. The Harlequin of Hate knows Thorne was behind the apparent death of Professor Hugo Strange, the man who attempted to sell the secret identity of the Batman. The Joker informs Thorne he is lucky that Strange and his secret are no longer in play, since he wouldn't want anything disrupting his games with Batman. But Thorne asks the Joker, what if Strange isn't dead? The fat man laughs maniacally and runs out on the perplexed crime clown. He heads to the club's garage, removes his driver from his waiting car, and speeds away on his own. Later that night, the bat signal shines, and the Dark Knight takes his now unauthorized meeting with Commissioner Gordon in the home of G. Carl Francis. The Joker interrupts a TV broadcast with one of his own, vowing that at precisely midnight, he will kill Francis. By 11.55, Batman and Gotham's police have searched Francis' home from stem to stern with no signs of foul play. As they wait for the midnight hour, Batman ponders the still-gestating storm, the future of his relationship with Silver, and the fate of the missing Hugo Strange. Suddenly, gas begins to billow in through the house's heating ducts. The Dark Knight detective quickly removes his rebreather apparatus from his utility belt and places it over Francis's nose and mouth as he holds his own breath. But as the clock strikes its final bongs, Francis doubles over and out of Batman's arms. As he hits the floor, the muscles in his face take on the frightening, rictus smile of the Joker. Gordon wonders how they all managed to survive with no gas masks, but Batman speculates that the Joker sprayed Francis in his office with one part of a deadly binary compound. The Joker appears on TV once more to gloat over his victory and to threaten the life of the next bureaucrat in line by 3 a.m. 300 miles away, Rupert Thorne picks up a stranded motorist he recognizes from one of Bruce Wayne's recent parties, Silver St. Cloud. A reluctant Thorne agrees to give her a lift, and as the two drive off, the coming storm finally begins to break, and the flash of lightning seems to illuminate the night with the ghostly visage of Hugo Strange. So what do you think of this one, Ryan? It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, we're done. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great little uh, opening chapter to this little story arc worthy of inclusion in the jo- greatest Joker stories ever told. Um, I mean, this is a fun, kind of memorable plot. It's it's the Joker's fish. They, they, we, we talked about it. They made half of an animated series episode devoted to this plot. Um, some of Roger's best art is in this issue, um, and there's just a lot of yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna go through pretty in in more detail, but yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. I had in my notes. There's a reason this is always included in the greatest Joker stories ever told. Uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely one of the most famous Joker stories uh, for a reason. So, uh, and you know, we'll 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 get into that. You know, as we as we move along. So, uh, getting into it, uh, you know, more at a more page by page level. Uh, that splash page. Wow, uh, that's that's just the thing of architectural beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it's uh, you know if if you didn't know that Marshall Rogers was an architecture student before, then <laughs> really? you probably figured it out from this. I mean, oh my gosh, it's just yeah. Yeah, I, I want to take all of the captions and all of the bubbles off of this and just look at the page. Um, but he does do a great job from like the angle, then this sort of downwards angle. He creates kind of like a Z effect in the structures of the buildings for the skyline that kind of bring your eyes across um, from the first caption, the text coming across this flag to Batman with his cape spread out. And then you trace the lines of the buildings kind of coming down at a sort of diagonal towards the left, leading you to Batman's silhouette, his shadow on the wall of this other thing and brings you down to the, the title and the fish at the bottom. It's, uh, it's great. It's such a good panel. So I'm oh, sorry. It's yeah. such a good page. Yeah, it you know it was years before I really noticed that the sign of the laughing mm. fish above it because in the original version it's all colored a brown color and I guess when Rogers recolored it for uh probably the shadow of the Batman and then mm. it's the same one been used in every other version every other reprint it, you know he they they color the fish like a green color and it stands out from the the board of the of the sign, so and and the animated series episode, the Laughing Fish, begins with an image. It, it's like one of the few times when you get the title isn't on a still title card, mm-hmm. um, but actually like a part of the episode because it, you see the the fish sign kind of blowing in the rain and the wind and everything like that, and the lightning cracks over it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting too. You know, last time we got two of those introductory legend uh, blurbs about Batman, you know, uh, an almost legendary figure. And then the mm-hmm. orphan is a child. This time we get none. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get either one of them this time, which I think is kind of interesting. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, we go into the next page. I almost wonder if Rogers, was it going to try to spread the credits across the first few pages with the, with that read the story by Steve Englehart billboard, you mm-hmm. know, there's, which is there's a billboard in the background that says that, which is, kind of interesting so i don't know maybe they were giving him a shout out because you know he wasn't involved in the day-to-day production since he handed his scripts in and ran off to to uh europe so maybe that's maybe that's what was going on i don't know (laughs) so batman just lifts the window of a woman woman wearing only a towel and after he comes in he asks if he can come in So that's pretty pervy, Batman. I'm sorry. You know, I know that's your that's your girlfriend, but what if she doesn't know you're Batman? Then you just literally just like you're you're you, he pecks on the window apparently, but and she turns around, but he's already coming through. So 
for this scene, I mean, pages two through four, of course she's in a towel. Of course she is, because it's Silver and Marshall Rogers drawing her, and she's sexy as hell, and of course. But yeah, it's not a great idea for Batman to come in and confront her like this through the window. Why didn't he confront her as Bruce Wayne? Why didn't he just... They had a date. Why didn't he... This is a scene that looks dramatic, and it has all of this, like, tension, but it's kind of... It's one of those things where you kind of scrutinize it. It's like, I don't know. It does remind me, and I, I wonder if it was a deliberate play on this in Batman Forever, the movie, when Batman goes to Chase's apartment, and she's, like, lying in bed and apparently sleeps naked. And you just see Nicole Kidman pulling the the, the blanket up over her. I, re- I remember that scene when I was reading this. Yeah, yeah it's kind of hard to forget that scene. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part of that movie with Batman and Robin and the Riddler and Two Face was <laughs> Nicole Kidman naked under the covers, pulling the blanket around her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, this. Yeah, if if he showed up as Bruce. Then he could have said, I heard there was some excitement at the uh, convention center last night, you know, and and I heard Batman was there or something. You know, I mean, it, it, but yeah, it, I do kind of like, though, as soon as he walks, as soon as he comes in, he realizes it was a mistake <laughs> because because so he he doesn't, you know, Engelhart Engelhart is basically saying, OK, Batman's not thinking straight. He, this woman's really got in his head. You know, he's he's really confused. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure, you know, what his plans were here. I mean, you know, uh, you know, it's, yeah, he, I don't think he's going to deny it. I don't think he's going to try, you know, he didn't try, you know, the typical, well, I got to throw her off the scent. So I'm going to have Robin dress up as Batman and I'm going to appear to her as Bruce Wayne and we're going to be in the same room together or, you know, they didn't try to Lois Laner, you know, basically, um, at this point, but, uh, it, it's, it is, <laughs> it is, it is a strange, it is a strange thing. And, and apparently, uh, you know, uh, Englehart's, uh, been doing interviews with, with Dan Greenfield over 13th Dimension, uh, that series we talked about last time. And of course they've wrapped it up by now, but Englehart did say that it was completely Marshall Rogers idea to put silver in a towel, uh, so as you said, you know, but, but, you know, in a way that makes her more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's, you know, literally she's just, you know, she's standing there, uh, literally stripped naked in front of him. And then he feels like he's been exposed, uh, <laughs> yeah. to her. So it's kind of, they're kind of on equal footing in some ways, you know? So I think it's, it's, it's a neat scene and it's, but it, yeah, it's like, if you, if you scrutinize it, yeah, Batman just wasn't really thinking this one through too well. So I do like. I love how she drops to the floor mm-hmm. as 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 Batman. Like you know, like the one panel, Batman's like literally bidding her adieu. He's like bowing and you know, putting throwing his hand out as he steps out of the window. And then the next scene, she's just she's just dropping to the floor. Yeah. So I kind of, I mean that that is the point where I realized it was kind of important for her to have this scene with Batman because she needs to be. It's one thing for her to suspect her boyfriend, millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne, has this secret double life. She needs to kind of be confronted with being in the presence of this shadowy vigilante who, like, who lives like a very violent and dangerous life, and whose entire 
like his whole mystique, his whole power is in making people terrified when she is actually in the room with that. I mean, that's when she breaks down. She's like, that was the Batman, a living legend. And now she's like, she's kind of looking at it from the other perspective that she know knows the secret about Batman that nobody else knows, that she knows who his identity is. It's not really that she knows something about Bruce Wayne that is that he has kept a secret. She knows the Batman secret, and this could make her life terrifying and dangerous for all time. So I do, putting it that way, I do understand why he went there as, well, it doesn't necessarily make sense from Batman's perspective, but I understand why Steve Englehart had to put him in costume when he goes to see her, because we need that moment. Um, I also, <laughs> on, after she's kind of broken down on page four, when she's thinking, how could I look those pale slits and say, I figured out your secret, even if we're, he's directly pointing out the fact that, it, that like the, the cowl, it's not a, an artistic, stylistic choice to make the eyes just the white triangles. That is the way the costume looks. Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't have eye holes where you can see the eye with with black eye shadow or not around around the eyes. It's <laughs> the, it's, it's more like Spider Man's mask where it has the, these just white slits for the eyes. Yeah, and nobody can ever decide. You know, it, it varies from artist to artist and writer to writer if that's the case. And we have never seen anybody really try that in a movie. It's like, can we just somebody give it a shot, see what it looks like? I you think know, the <laughs> closest in. In the dark night, when he had lenses come down that had a sort of um, had some sort of when he was like looking at like like the sonar effect or something like that, right? We saw and actually, yeah. I guess like the the helmet version that Affleck wore for his battle against Superman, yeah. But yeah, it's those, they're very different. Yeah, it's like nobody nobody as uh, as many different Batman have we've had, many different costumes we've had. Nobody's tried that, which is interesting. So it's like, hmm. yeah, I do love the you know. You know, Rogers again. The you know we got these panels of silver in her in her. You know she's crumpled on the floor next to her bed, and and that first panel where she's dropping. I don't know how they got past the the <laughs> comics code. I wonder if uh, uh, Terry Austin had to go in and kind of erase some things or whatever because you honestly the yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, but I love that pa- little panel of Batman silhouette in the phone booth. I mean, it mm-hmm. you know it, it just it it's it, you know all. All Rogers needs at this point is just the shape of Batman, you know, uh, and he does such a great job with the cape and the the way the cape moves and it, it just looks great. And it's 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 a kind of a fun idea to think, you know, in the time before cell phones, Batman literally had to drop down, go over to a phone booth and make a phone call. <laughs> and it probably smelled like a homeless person's urine. Yeah, it probably did. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. I, I love like I love the panels and the designs of page five, like when Batman just kind of like swinging through. It's it kind of has this feels like a Marvel page to me. Just like the fact that the hero is swinging through the skyline from like roof to roof and everything like that, kind of endlessly, and he's thinking about this inner turmoil, the conflict within his re- his real life. It's, this is the most melodrama we get from, or, or soap opera, that we get from Batman. And this just feels like this was Englehart, right, channeling his Marvel background. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is, and I mean, that's ultimately, that's that's one thing that, that Englehart brought to, to Batman and, and, and to DC Comics was that Marvel, that, that Marvel melodrama, that serial, serialized feel. And, and yeah, you're, I mean, this could very well 
be Spider-Man swinging, you know, through cities like, you know, Betty Brand hates Spider-Man, but she <laughs> loves Peter Parker now, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and what am I going to do about Aunt May, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely. It's it. And I love the, the reversed scalloped uh, cape thing he's got going on on the top panel border on that page. Mm. And, and, and there's that tiny little image of Silver walking to the garage. I mean, he didn't even have to include that, but that's a nice touch. You know, it's, it's just kind of, it's like, you know, while he's doing this and thinking about her, this is what she's doing. I mean, there's no dialogue. If you blink, you'll even miss it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, I don't think Rogers gets enough credit for his innovative layouts in, in these stories. You know, uh, you know, I, I think he, we've commented on them before. And I mean, you know, I, I mean, this is 10 years after, you know, Steranko and, and, and Jack Kirby really cut loose and Steranko came aboard on along and, and Gil Kane started to cut loose too. And, and, you know, get Paul Galassi at, at, at Marvel, who's a kind of a Steranko student. And, yep. and, but, but at the same time, it's Rogers is Rogers is no slouch in that department for sure. Yeah. 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 So now we get to the laughing fish. And then the next page, I don't think I've ever heard Englehart say where he got the idea for the fish specifically. Now, there is an episode of the 60s Batman series where the Joker's literally like pelting fish at him. So I don't know if he was watching that, but uh, he said he just wanted to portray the Joker as truly insane. And he he said the Joker's five-way revenge introduced reintroduced a deadly Joker, but he felt like he wasn't particularly insane or unpredictable in that story which we covered recently Mm -hmm. so do you agree with him on that one yeah yeah i mean yeah in terms of coming up with a a plot that is kind of like wacky silly like that's i mean i guess based in making money but something so horrifically crazy that's just like really this is what you think you're how you think you're gonna get how do you think this is gonna go and what ends are you willing to go to to achieve this or or, yeah i don't know yeah i i think i think he's right though i think he definitely added the crazy back Mm -hmm. to the joker i mean he he, this is where they mailed the the merry prankster joker who's off his gourd with just the silly things he'll do with the the deadly joker you know or or, or we they put them back together basically Mm -hmm. um yeah now, I will say, you know, as we've covered this, I, I have preferred the printing in the original, uh, you know, single comics. Uh, I won't call them floppies because that offends some people. Uh, but uh, but uh, this time I got to say there's it might just be the the copy I have. But like the the panel where Batman looks into the basket of fish to see the, you know, the Joker fish, that one, the, the shadow of Batman's head, uh, you know, with his ears and everything, that's it really is muddy and hard to, to see through. Um, and then on the next page or so when the, yeah, the next page where the Joker's goons are standing in front of the door of the copyright office, it's hard to read the sign and it's easier to read both in the reprints that I have. So I, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't know if my copy was later in the day or, or what, you know, later in the print run or, or something. And it's early and it's thick, the ink's thick, but it, it didn't work as well. So, because uh, you know Rogers does a lot of the zipatone effects through you know throughout these comics, and, and in a couple of places it doesn't reproduce too well. So I'll just say floppy, 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 floppy. If anybody is offended <laughs> by that word, I don't care. <laughs> Get offended Flop- by something that actually matters. <laughs> floppy like Joker fish. <laughs> They're finny and funny and oh so delish. 
<laughs> Speaking of uh, the animated series, <clears throat> the Joker's entrance when he comes in, and it's great entrance. He's walking in, he's got that trench coat, he's dropping his card, taking his hat off, laughing, and the the uh, commissioner goes, "Good lord, is it where?" I like that. It's a funny little gag. I do like the animated series version better when the guy goes, Great Scott. And he's like, Actually, I'm Irish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that, that animated version does this one one better because doesn't Harley spray mm-hmm. Francis there? Yeah, yeah, she sprays him like because she's like talking about it being the fish stinking and everything. And, and she sprays him because that's one thing I think that they really should have. They should have had the Joker like squirting with his flower or, you know, he drops the Joker card as he walks in. I mean, even if they'd shown him, like, after Joker leaves, he picks the card up and handles it. You know, it mm. could have had some kind of chemical on it or something because we never see that. And I think that's a bit of a cheat. Right. Um, you know, it's like we should have we should have seen the Joker do something, you know, even if he, you know, joy buzzed him and, you know, he pricked his hand and, you know, Kind of like what the Joker does to the guy later in the Killing Joke mm-hmm. when he when he buys the amusement park or whatever, you know. But uh, yeah, I you know, but that's that's a nitpick. This is that that panel of the Joker as he walks in that long that page long panel. I'm surprised that hasn't become more of an iconic image used on merchandise and stuff. I mean, it, it, I I would wear a T-shirt with that, you know. I mean, it's it's uh, it's so good, and he uses Jerry Robinson's joker card design so that's another uh call back to the golden age so i, I thought that was cool mm-hmm. um another thing on the page before when when the joker's men throw the door open t- we talked about this when this first started we couldn't tell if it was john workman or if it was rogers but now that john workman as letterer has moved on the word bam is written vertically down the door as the joker's goons you know throw it open mm-hmm. so i got to figure that's rogers at this point he's mm-hmm. drawing that he's drawing those sound effects into the page so yeah i think and, that's and considering these are just three kind of throwaway goons look at the detail like look at how rogers costumes them the, mm-hmm. the lead guy, the black guy, he looks like, like he's wearing like a denim jacket. The guy to his right who ends up getting pushed in front of the thing, he's wearing like a fur-lined coat. You see the fur under on his hood and underneath. The other guy's wearing like a white knit sweater, like a, a fisherman's sweater. Like it looks like what um, uh, uh, Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Yeah, it looks like his sweater from <laughs> from Knives Out, which I just watched. it does exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's got the same I was sweater. Thinking, he's got this. It's Steve Rogers. He's turned to crime. He's a blonde guy. He's he's. <laughs> He's got his sweater on, and he's yeah. I thought the same thing. Oh, it's 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 Chris Evans from Knives Out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he does. I mean, yeah, the detail in 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 these scenes is just in, incredible. And and you know, there's a few pa- panels like the panel on page nine, the top panel, and the first panel, and then the panel on page ten, where Rogers really seems to be channeling that Conrad bite look for the Joker, the original inspiration of the Joker from the man who laughs. So we get that again uh, later on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's definitely channeling that. And honestly, there's a little bit of him that looks a little bit like a younger Jack Nicholson too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's like, mm-hmm, art imitates life. I, I was actually going to say on the, the first panel on page nine, that upper one, that looks like just a little bit thinner version of how Ordway drew Joker in the, uh, the adaptation of the movie. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Jack got a little bit thicker with the middle <laughs> age by then, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all this is just fantastic. And and uh, 
you know, there, there, there is one thing though. Now, now here I'm going to, I'm going to be the, you know, seems like we've been kind of complaining a lot this episode, but I'm going to yeah, allow me another old man screaming on his lawn uh, bit. The Joker is so vain. Cue Carly Simon. He's put his face on fish. He says, they all recognize the face, even on the flounder's fizz. And when he's told no, he says, but the fish share my unique face. So this is why I never bought the Joker wanting to have his face cut off in the new 52. Oh. If Yeah, if the creators behind that wanted a horror villain a la Leatherface, invent a new one. You know, I mean, that I just, that was just a, no, oh, the Joker's vain. That's his whole that's his whole thing. You know, that's his his vanity is is where Batman often gets him, you know. So, yeah, I just I couldn't, you know. Just, uh. Now, it, I will say, you know, I always kind of hear Mark Hamill's Joker. And it might be because because they actually did this episode. <laughs> they did this comic as an episode. But in this one, I particularly hear Hamill's voice because the Joker is he literally is crazy. You know, I mean, he's literally mercurial he's like back and forth you know he's he's talking to the guy and and then he asks him a question he says now don't talk to me anymore and he asks him a question and then he he slaps him upside the head for talking to him you know they I mean, just it, it, it's it's great that this is so to be this is the joker it's the balance of his insane mind darting from place to place it's combined with some very dark humor mm-hmm. but it's always funny you may think to yourself i shouldn't be laughing at this he just killed that guy you know <laughs> But when the Joker crosses over into just pure sadism and body horror, well, it's not funny anymore. And I, to me, that's not the Joker. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even even Heath Ledger, you know, I mean, as dark as the Dark Knight was, I think they still kept that balance. I mean, he's still like his magic trick. And when he shows up in the hospital dressed as a nurse, that's still funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's dark. It's darkly funny. It's twisted. But you still find yourself like laughing at this guy, even though you shouldn't. <laughs> right, right. So you know when you cross that line into okay, this isn't funny anymore. Then then you've crossed the line into a story that's not about the Joker, in my opinion. And you can say the Joker's in it, but if he's not funny, then it's not the Joker. So that that's me. I'm just you know that's the another hill I'll die on. So. <laughs> Well, I am certainly not going to argue that they sh- that they were right to cut the Joker's face off in the New Fifty Two. That's not the position I would take. But no, I agree. I, I hear Mark Hamill's, and part of it is just because a lot of this dialogue is pretty closely adapted to that episode too. Like especially when he's like, "Colonel Colonel, what's his name can have chickens when they don't even have mustaches." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love that line. <laughs> I will say before we move on from this, in the original copy, since we are on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, uh, before we get to the scene with uh, with Thorne, uh, there's a full-page ad for the debut of Firestorm, the nuclear mm. man. So there you go. So there you go, Shag. That's for you. I will I – will you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, though, on that, on that next page, on page 11. Uh, Rogers has been so very detailed. I mean, the panel before – the page before, the panels show the Joker and his goons walking – you know, away from the building and you're looking down through a fire escape mm-hmm. at them. And, and, you know, you see all the, the grime and the trash in the alleyway and the brick of the building. And, and then the, you know, the jokers, you know, goons like, what are you going to do boss? And, and he says, I have other matters to attend to blue eyes. And, you know, and by the way, and that panel's very detailed and you see a truck, you know, kind of coming up from the side and then you got to get past the ads in the original, 
But then the next page, the Joker says, mind your own business, and throws him out in front of that truck. And there's like absolutely no background detail in these two panels. It's I, I guess that's maybe because Rogers is going is using this the honk from the first panel and screech from the next panel to kind of make a border and the K's are intersecting. So it's him being experimental, but it's kind of weird that the background just completely drops out after after he's been so detailed in every other panel. Yeah, especially with the first one. Like, I can see, like, I would want a little bit more detail from the first panel where he's pushing the guy, and and we we only really get like the silhouettes, the backgrounds of the of the of his two other goons. Um, with the second panel, when it's just like an all red background, uh, at least on the reprint, I get that not having any background color because it's just like the effect of sort of like the idea that somebody was just violently killed, so you just have like that red splash for like the blood and the idea of of violence. That that's fine, but yeah, that first that first panel is noticeably a- absent of background detail. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of strange. Just mm-hmm. let I point that out. Uh, then we move over to the Tobacconist Club and Rupert Thorne in his in his uh, very time consumingly crafted uh, houndstooth suit, which is done <laughs> with zipatone effect. <laughs> Looks nice though, yeah, you know. So yeah, good, good job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask: Was the Joker just lurking in the restroom to scare Thorn, <laughs> or was he really? Did he really have to go? What do you think? <laughs> I think he went up there. He was going to go to Thorn's office and threaten him, but he's just like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta stop in the bathroom, take a leak first, and then it just so happened that Thorn went in there at the same time. He's like, oh hey, this saves me a trip <laughs> down the hall. <laughs> Uh, I like that Thorne is flummoxed that Joker also wants to protect Batman's secret. Uh, you know, you know, it's it, it, it kind of feels like, you know, he's being frightened by Hugo Strange's ghost constantly. But it kind of feels like Thorne has found himself in a world of super criminal madmen and his old school gangster methods just can't cut it. It's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of similar to what what Nolan did with the Scarecrow and Falcone and, yeah. and the Dark Knight, and then what the Joker did with all the the criminals, and I mean, in Batman Begins, and then what the Joker did with all the criminals in the Dark Knight, and, and in, in, a, in a some ways similar to what you know Nicholson did in, in Batman '89, you know, when he showed up as the Joker. Uh, so that's kind of a neat, you know, uh, story. This is probably the first time anybody's. I don't know if if Engelhart was trying to make that point in particular, but it definitely feels like like the first version of that idea that. The old school gangsters, you know, are just so outmatched by all these super criminals mm-hmm. at, you know, at this point. And it just, you know, and I mean, he runs away, he loses it, he loses it and runs away. Even the Joker's like, say, you know, <laughs> this guy's crazy, you know. <laughs> Did you just run away in the middle of my villain monologue? It's like, I didn't, I didn't give you permission to leave. What's the, what's the matter with you? Right, exactly. <laughs> so. Um... I, you know, it's funny because I had actually been questioning after the last two issues that we covered in the last episode, why did we get the hint that the Joker was spying on the Penguin in the movie theater and laughing, but he refused to be shown? Why did we have to see the Joker watching Batman fight Deadshot from that window? I was like, okay, I know he's teasing Joker is going to be coming back, but why is he in these particular places? Like, what's the point of this? This kind of answered the Penguin question, which is that the Joker wanted to know. He wanted some some closure to find out who Hugo Strange sold Batman's identity to. Did the Penguin know? And that's why he's following the Penguin. And when he hears the Penguin 
basically talking out loud in the movie theater, explaining that he didn't get it, then the Joker's like, okay, the Penguin doesn't know who it is. So now he's coming back to check with Rupert Thorne. Does Thorne know who he is? And then, like, once he figures out, no, then or he, he kind of, like, threatens him. So if this is... This is kind of answering a, a lingering question that I had. I still don't know why we had to see him watching the whole dead shot play out, but whatever. It doesn't matter. I think he was just, I think that literally, literally was just him trying, hey, Joker's coming next issue, guys. You know? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, he definitely, you know, you know, and this, you know, I, I think they've established before, you know, the Joker could have unmasked Batman at different times and stuff, but. Mm-hmm. You know, he really does not want that in play. It is kind of interesting that both, you know, Strange and Joker feel the same way, but Thorne points it out. It's like, he's protecting him just like Strange, you know. So mm-hmm. it kind of it kind of papers over the fact that that, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, they both have the same motivation. But, uh, I, I you know, as, as we move on to the to the scene where Batman gets to Francis's house, I do have a minor net. How did Batman know to find Gordon at Francis's house when he just used the bat signal? because you know he hadn't threatened you know i mean unless batman of course he could have listened to police band or mm-hmm. or something but yeah so he shows up and yeah you know and, and gordon's happy to see him even though he's not legally supposed to be there now but getting back to the the man who laughs the conrad i think i think the image of joker on the tv when he's you know saying he, he announces his target and the joker has spoken this is right out of batman number one. Oh um, yeah this is like right like that looks like an old or older um I, I guess we'll say Bob Kane drew that originally. <laughs> At this point, I think he still was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bob um, Kane, Jerry Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looks like that version of the Joker and everything. And even like the same sort of threatening message punctuated with the Joker is spoken. So it's, yeah, that's right out of old school Batman issue one. Yeah. He just moved up from radio to TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the only difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely cool. I, you know, I will say, Batman, you know, maybe it's because Batman is distracted by Silver, by Hugo Strange, but their check of the house isn't too thorough if Joker can tamper with the heating ducts, though, is it? I mean, <laughs> how thorough was it, Batman? I, I just, you know, because at midnight, boom, here comes the gas. I do love the, the bat rebreather panel that shows it popping off the belt. It shows how it like fits into the belt, like there's a little hole that it pops into. I, I love little details like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and then the panels of Francis falling to the floor, and then the grin appearing on his face—they're really well done. It's very cinematic. Uh, of course, this whole series is pretty cinematic, but there's a couple of couple of uh, sequences in these two issues that are particularly stand out in that way. And I, in the original version, in the reprints I've seen, his face is like yellowed mm-hmm. as he as he you know goes dies and goes into the Joker, gets the Joker grin. It's not in the original. I think it actually works better that way. It, it focuses on the on the grin. The way Rogers draws it is really particularly. It, it's not like monstrous, but it just looks it, it looks disturbing with the gums exposed and it's just yuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's that panel of of them watching the TV again, and he's in the foreground. His body's in the foreground. And it focuses on his teeth and his gums. And it's just like ugh. <laughs> I do like that Batman's able to, hmm, now that I smell this, it is part of a binary compound. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is the whole Joker's whole shtick in Batman 89. Yeah. Uh, yep. So no wonder Inglehart is pissed. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. 
So I hate to say this, but I think on the last page, Silver may be relying on her feminine charms just a bit in getting that ride from Thorn because the way she pulls her hood, her uh, hood of her jacket down, and pr- she it looks like she's swinging her hair from the looks of it, you know, to straighten her hair. It reminds me of the opening to Charlie's Angels, which was huge at the time. <laughs> I don't think Silver can help being sexy. I don't think so either. Whether she's in a towel or a rain slicker, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I love this out-of-left-field cliffhanger. I think this is a great thing. You've got two disparate parts of Batman's world that collide together in a way that he could not have anticipated, and he doesn't even know this is happening. Um, right. But the fact that these two people who have this tangential connection to Batman are thrown together and there's a storm coming. It's just it's fraught with danger and suspense. It's a cool cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you know that that's I mean the whole through this whole issue is about how the storm just won't break and it's just this this tension the, uh, this mounting tension between the characters and the weather. It's just like everything's like literally coming to a head. I mean, you know, Englehart does a great job. He knows he's he's done. The next issue is the finale. It, it, as far as he could, was concerned, it might be his last comic script period he was maybe going to get out of comics uh so he's he's really building you know up to this one i mean you know and and uh, and like you said that storyline you know all the storylines the silver the the thorn and through thorn the strange storyline they're all coming to a head and now you have the joker as the x element the the agent of chaos as he is right and he's thrown into the mix of it uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of, it, it's a, it's a great, it is a great cliffhanger. It's a great ending. Yeah. And I love the little visual of, of, uh, strange where the lightning's hitting the trees and forming his face. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a nice touch. I will note one thing, just a, just a quick note on the back of this, the original comic, there's an ad for superhero watches, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man. Yes. On the back of a DC comic and the Joker, now, if that doesn't tell you who comic's greatest villain is, I don't know what does. <laughs> so, I mean, now the Joker's only available in large sizes, so they don't think little kids are going to want the Joker. And it's that classic Carmine Infantino image of the Joker standing with the cane in his hands, but you just get him from the shoulders up. But And he's got a Target background behind him. Kind of looks like the the Joker logo from the Jack Nicholson used on all of his stuff in the movie, in a way. It's interesting, and I I still have I have this Batman watch from childhood. I still have it. It doesn't work, but I still got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Ryan will tell you all about Detective Comics number four seventy six, the final chapter. Don't go away. In a world filled with movie themed podcasts, thousands speak their minds, shouting their opinions into the void. Into this terrifying world of sound and noise, a new podcast about movies dares to raise its head. Appearing on the Longbox Crusade Network, in association with Jeffener Present, it is the era of monthly Monday movie muckabout. Listen as people are challenged to see films that they have missed or failed to see. Hear their new appreciation for films from years past. Experience the discussions of film fans. Is the world ready for monthly Monday movie muckabout? Yes. Yes, it is. And cut. Perfect, Jeff. Great. So when are we going to start this show? Um, just me. This is my new show. 
I thought we talked about this. Uh, then why am I doing your promo? Because in reality, I'm an egotistical puppet master that uses people for his own profit and fame. Huh. Eh, fair enough. Da-da-da-da, monthly Monday movie muck about, watch a movie with me. Detective Comics 476 has a March-slash-April 1978 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the actual on-sale date was December 29th, 1977. The book cost a quarter and a dime and sported a cover by, you guessed it, Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. The cover shows a rain-soaked Batman with a Joker smile on his face standing over the prone bodies of three more victims of the Joker's deadly poison and one Joker fish, too. The Batman's cape opens up to show part of the bat symbol, and in the black negative space beneath, we see the words, The Sign of the Joker. What do you think of the cover? Oh, I really like this one. Uh, you know, it's... It... It you know where the the last Joker cover was silly. This is the deadly Joker cover. There's there's dead victims beneath, which uh, are Julius Schwartz, Marshall Rogers, and Steve Englehart. By the way, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, but Batman's been Jokerized, so there's this deadly this this feeling of dread and 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 death to this cover. And I really love the texture work that that Rogers puts on Batman's cape and the rain and the, the, you know, the addition of the laughing fish. And it's really cool that they, they work the title of the story into inside of Batman's cape. It's just a real great cover. Yeah. I agree. With everything you said, I, I love looking at these two covers side by side. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really good. I, I like that. I mean, the fact that the, the three bodies were designed, were homages to who they are is a really great touch, but yeah, I, I love just like that look of like the cape, the the sort of negative space. It's like um, the Marvel character cloak, or or sometimes the Spectre was done that way too, and just like something like you could just see like it's like this portal into a a, a, a dark space or a negative zone. But mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, the sign of the Joker is written by Inglehart, drawn by Rogers and Austin, lettered by Milt Snappen, colored according to Mike's Amazing World. The original colorist was Glennis Ween or Glennis mm-hmm. Oliver. Uh, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Rain falls over Gotham as the police cordon off the home of Thomas Jackson, the next-in-line official who has failed to secure a copyright on Jokerfish. The cape and cowled figure of the Batman stands at the double doors looking out at the rain while Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara, yay, discuss the Joker's dastardly plot. The last person in the room is wearing a bathrobe and pajamas, presumably Thomas Jackson. The cops are startled when a cat slinks into the room, but the owner explains that it's just Jackson's cat, Ernest. The man in the bathrobe realizes that something is wrong, that the cat is carrying a joker fish in its mouth, and that the toxin has infected the feline, too. The man in the robe tries to warn the others as he springs into action, but the cat bounces right past him and jumps onto the man wearing the cape and cowl. It bites and scratches, and within moments... Gordon and O'Hara are treated to a truly ghastly sight. Another corpse, another victim of the Joker, only this time the smiling death mask is wearing the Batman's cowl. The real Batman, of course, is wearing Jackson's bathrobe and the flesh mask to disguise his true identity. He pulls his cape and cowl off the dead Jackson, angry that his clever plan to swap places with the intended victim failed because he didn't take the house pet into account. The TV snaps on, and the Joker announces yet a third target from the Copyright Commission. 
Batman slams open the double doors, shattering the glass on both, and leaps out into the rainy night. He runs through the wooded grove, knowing the Joker must be transmitting his message from somewhere nearby. All of a sudden, the Batman stops when he sees a somewhat spectral, shimmering form in the distance. As Batman approaches, he thinks the image looks like Hugo Strange, who has been missing for months. The image disappears, though, leaving no sign it was ever there. Almost. On the ground, Batman finds a small electronics device called a vapor analysis meter. Meanwhile, the Clown Prince of Crime cackles maniacally in his secret lair, having gotten over on Batman and the police. And yet, even he is prey to his own madness when paranoia sets in that people will stop consuming fish, cutting off his newly earned revenue stream. But with a laugh, the Joker presses on, deciding he'll just poison cattle to create Joker burgers instead. An hour after Thomas Jackson's murder, Rupert Thorne is still on the road, nearly to Akron, Ohio. Silver St. Cloud sits in the passenger seat with him. They have hardly spoken to each other, both wrapped up in their own inner monologues. Silver, smoking a cigarette, still has no idea what to do about Bruce and the knowledge that he's secretly the Batman. Thorne, with his cigar, is still terrified of the ghost of Hugo Strange, but feels safe with the innocent stranger in the car. Thorne turns off the radio after a bulletin announces the Joker's latest crime spree and the Batman. Thorne starts to rant about how bad the Batman is and how he's ruining Gotham. Almost in spite of herself, Silver defends the Dark Knight, advocating for his defense of Gotham and its citizenry, and pointing out Thorne's alleged misdeeds as well. The boss slams on the brakes and kicks Silver out of the car. Stranded on the side of the road, Silver walks to a light she sees across a field, eventually coming to an old airplane hangar. And inside the hangar, a man works on a twin-prop plane. Silver asks about catching a flight back to Gotham. Back on the road, Thorne continues to drive, hoping to pick up another hitchhiker to serve as a shield from the ghost. He slows when he sees someone on the side of the road, but the form takes the shape of the Spirit of Strange. The ghost flies into the car and wraps its hands around Rupert Thorne's throat, saying now they'll both be able to rest. Back in Gotham City, as the rain continues to pour, Batman and the police continue to guard the third-in-line copyright official. Gordon wakes up from his nap as the shift changes, and the new uniformed officers come on duty. Abruptly, Batman grabs one of the cops and throws him against the wall. He tells Gordon the cop is really the Joker, having been alerted by the small device left by the ghost earlier. The accused cop pulls off his mask and uniform, revealing the Joker. The clown tries to spray Batman with acid, the tactic with which he had intended to kill his next victim. Batman ducks the acid and throws a punch. It misses the Joker's head, but puts a hole through the drywall. The Joker runs to the window and escapes onto the fire escape, taunting Batman, all while Gordon and the room full of other cops just sort of stand around watching. On the street below, a taxi cab pulls up. Silver St. Cloud gets out and looks up to see the Batman chasing the Joker up the fire escape. The Joker kicks Batman, who, in the rain, loses his footing and goes over the side. He catches hold of the fire escape just in time. Joker tries to step on his fingers to make him fall, but Batman swings back up. Joker climbs to the top of the building and sprints to the edge of the roof on the other side. 
Batman chases. The building next door is under construction. The Joker leaps out across the gap between them, landing on a girder held suspended in the air by a cable and winch. The Batman leaps after him, his cape fanning out, gliding onto the girder. Joker once again tries to spray him with acid, and the Batman is forced to jump away onto the iron frame of the building under construction. Then, suddenly, a bolt of lightning strikes the girder Joker is standing on, electrocuting him. The madman falls into the river below. Batman swings down to the edge of the river, looking for any sign of the Joker, waiting for his body, living or dead, to emerge. Instead, he finds Silver St. Cloud. She tells him that she knows the truth of who he is, and that she loves him, but, having seen him in action, the dangerous and deadly world he plays in, she can't live with that. She could never live with wondering if the next time he goes out he might die. So she gives him one final kiss and runs off, telling him to stay away. Gordon finds Batman alone and tells him that Rupert Thorne was found in Ohio in a manic state, babbling and confessing to every crime and misdeed he'd ever committed, which exonerates the Batman. Gordon thinks that's good news, but when he turns to look, the Batman is gone. As the rain ceases and the sun begins to rise in the east, the Dark Knight detective swings through Gotham City, making his way home. The end. So, Chris, what did you think? Oh, what a letdown. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh no, no, this is great. This is uh this is a great this is a great ending. It's a great wrap up. Uh yeah, I I we'll get into it as we go along, but yeah, this is uh this is a very satisfying end to, to, to everything that, that Engelhart's been building since he came on the book. I disagree. Okay. <laughs> I actually was let down by this issue. Okay. Um, there are a lot of great things about it, a lot of it owing to the art and, and, and Inglehart storytelling, but I can't say this is a good story, or, or maybe a good story that just has a lot, that is told badly, but Inglehart does a lot of things wrong in this issue, and I think it's easy to gloss over them, but when I was really kind of reading it closely, there are three different, like, Deus Ex Machina moments in this story that contribute to the end, and... I mean, writers have been told they they should know that when you're really investing in a story, the last thing you want to do is have the the climax, the conflict of it, the result of things that are not in the protagonist's control or that they don't have any agency over. We get that three times in the story. The first one, Batman is given the means to catch the Joker through this device that we have never seen before. It is contingent on a vague illusion from several issues issues ago um, that that Strange sprayed all of the um, the the people at the auction or whatever, so he can know who is there and who can come back to later and everything. Um, and this device is just given to Batman, left there by a ghost, the ghost of Hugo Strange. That Batman doesn't even know Strange is dead, but he leaves this vapor analysis meter for Batman to find. Why would Strange want the Joker caught? Like, why Why does this have anything to do with anything? Like, so that's one big problem that I have with it. The second one, Batman's problems with the law and the city council, all of this stuff that's been brewing over the course of these issues, like the, the like Thorne's machinations, all those, those are resolved because Thorne confesses to everything on his own. 
And he does so because he's attacked by the ghost. He doesn't, like, Batman doesn't solve that problem. That problem gets solved for Batman without his control, without even his awareness of what is going on. And the last thing is the Joker is defeated in the story by a bolt of lightning. Like, literally, <laughs> literally an act of God just coming down and stopping the Joker from getting away or from killing more people. Like, <laughs> Batman doesn't do anything in the story to solve any of his problems. They all get solved for him. No, screw that. This is terrible. <laughs> now, some, somehow, because of the effects of, of Englehart and Rogers and their collaboration, it's still a really entertaining story, but it's not well done. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that it is. Okay, well, prepare for all the hate mail you're about to get, but okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm prepared for you to say this podcast is over. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get what you, I was going to say. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's a satisfying end, but I don't feel like it quite lives up to the first part of the Joker story. I, I, I will, I will freely admit that it, it's, it, you know, it, the, the part one's just crackling perfection nearly. Uh, this one. Yeah, definitely. The, the things you mentioned, um, you know, the uh, one thing about the, the vapor meter, which I was going to get into later, but I'll just go ahead and point out, I went back and looked over the issues. If you go by the, 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 you know, the, day to night, you know, change of like, you know, this morning, this day, I'm not going to go into all the detail. I wrote it all down, but we don't have to do that. It's been a week. It's been a week since Hugo Strange held his auction and Joker, Penguin and Thorn were sprayed. So that means the Joker, whatever Strange sprayed them with is if it's, you know, is it low level radioactivity? I don't know. He doesn't say that. He says it's like a chemical mix, uh, you know, of his own design and blah, blah, blah. So the Joker hasn't bathed or changed his clothes or laundered his clothes in a week. He's been, you know, and, and since the Joker's such a, a keen dresser, especially in these, you know, he's, he's back to wearing his fedora and his, his trench coat, like from the golden age in these stories. I, I can't see him not being, you know, you know, it makes me think of Jack Nicholson's Joker. You know, he was, you know, he preened a lot, you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I can't imagine this Joker not, not being clean and not having his clothes laundered and pressed so i yeah the whole that that thing kind of falls apart too you know it's like really it's been a week you know uh, <laughs> so so I, you know but yeah I, I i get it i get what you're saying and yeah you know that's that's the unfortunate part we've said that before podcasting sometimes these things you just look yeah the the joker uh i, I just go ahead and address this the joker you know getting struck by lightning inglehart had the perfect weight just have batman move out of the way he shoots the the cable holding the girder with the acid. It melts, and the Joker, Batman, still leaps away as the Joker falls to his death. Perfect, you know, yeah, the perfect. It's like you know, and it's the Joker is 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 you know hoisted on his his own petard. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just you know, it's he's he he takes his own self out, yep. and Batman at least participates by moving out of the way. You right. know, um, and the Joker falls, and the no in in the lightning bit, honestly. It reminds me a bit too much of the end of Lynn Wein, who's coming on the book next month, his Moon of the Wolf yeah. with, with Neil <laughs> Adams, because the werewolf, the Batman's fighting the werewolf, uh, Anthony Lupus, or Anthony Romulus, if you're you know in the, in the animated series, series. Yeah. yeah, he's fighting him on a scaffold of a building, and Batman throws a, 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 a metal rod at him, and it impales him, and as he's pulling it out, he gets struck by lightning and falls off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... It's like okay, that's the same ending, you know, pretty much the same ending. Uh, so yeah, I, and I don't know if Rod, if Englehart ever read that story or not, but it, 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 either way, it's uh, Julia Schwartz edited that book, so he should have 
you know, hey, we can't do that. We already did this, you know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I, I I get I get what you're getting at. Yeah, it's uh, outside of the legendary status of this storyline. Yeah, there, there's definitely some problems here. Yeah, I, I think I you pointed to an interesting like the Joker could have fallen off the building because because while fighting with Batman and Batman could have taken a more active role in knocking the Joker off that girder and everything. And you get the same end result of the Joker falling into the river and his body is missing and it's unresolved because that's the way it always is with the Joker. We've heard that mm-hmm. line before. Same thing, except it's not a freaking bolt of lightning out of the thin blue, out of the not clear blue sky because it's obviously a storm. But then it's not, you know, it, it actually makes Batman responsible for the fate of the story. The same thing. We didn't need this this stupid like vapor thing. Batman could have just been a good detective and caught the Joker sneaking around dressed up as a cop and seen some other clue that gave it away. Both of those things could have been solved so easily. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know. I know that Steve Englehart he created the Mantis character over at Marvel, and mm-hmm. I know he was in love with that character way more than anybody else was. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where a lot of fans are like, "Oh God," because you know. Maybe he's the same way. He didn't create Hugo Strange, but maybe he just really wanted Hugo Strange to to be the hero of the story, because in a lot of ways he is. <laughs> and that, I mean, we've got to talk about, what's up with that? <laughs> like, like, is he just a ghost? Like, and is this just like now? I mean, if you're in the shared DC universe, sure, there are ghosts operating. There's Dead Man, there's a Spectre, there's other ghostly characters, but... Like, this is just a weird kind of grounded and realistic world of, uh, like, Batman within this run to all of a sudden have one character as a ghost and what are his abilities? Like, you don't have any rules for this. Like, I I, I, I was never sure. Like, I mean, is this somebody that is, like, legit terrorizing Thorne? Is this Thorne's guilty conscience or is this a really ghost? Well, if if he's helping Batman in this one scene, then I I don't. (laughs) Why? I I don't. Why did we have a ghost? Why is there a ghost in this story? Well, Englehart, according to the interviews on, at 13th Dimension, he considered him a ghost. He considered him to be – he was dead. This was his ghost. So uh, he's a ghost. I mean, and he's got a 300-mile radius too because he can, appear to, <laughs> he can appear to Batman. And then, you know, in Gotham, which is in either New York or New Jersey, depending on what you subscribe to, and then turn around and appear in Akron, Ohio just sometime later and choke – uh, Thorn out, you know, so... I'm sure uh, Rupert Thorne has ordered the death of a lot of people. How come they didn't get to be ghosts? Right, why did, yeah. Why, I, did, why, why is Hugo Strange capable of this supernatural second life that no other character is? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and of course later on they they say that it wasn't a ghost and because they got to bring Hugo Strange back and blah, blah, blah. But as far as Englehart was concerned, no, he was dead and this is his ghost. So... And then they yeah. also do the thing where it looks like he's going to kill them, kill him. But we get we get the end. Like Gordon's like, no, he's alive. He's just you know he's confessing and everything. And he's like in a coma. So it, it reminded me of the GI Joe movie where you think Duke is going to be dead, and at the end they just have Doc voiceover saying, "No, he's in a coma. He's fine." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the snake bit his heart, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's um, yeah. I I, that, I definitely can see all that. That and that. That struck me as like the one thing where Engelhart didn't pace this out as well as he should because he he just ran out of pages and he's like oh yeah I need to I need to resolve all of this stuff with the city council and the cops now being ordered to take Batman down and him being a public enemy how do I do that oh the bad guy just has to confess 
Why does he convince? He was scared by a ghost. Bullshit. <laughs> That's such a stupid ending. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I, he he did, you know, Engelhart did say, you know, he had to put the toys he had to mm-hmm. reset the board, you know, and and that's back when writers actually cared about that. You know, they didn't yeah, they, they they didn't care about, you know, they they didn't break the toys. And if they broke them, they glued them back together before they got off the book. Right. You know, it's they, that doesn't happen nowadays, obviously. Uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So he you know, he had to get rid of silver because he didn't know if, you know, Lynn Wien or whoever was coming in that wanted to deal with that. He you know had to get rid of the thorn and and everything. So, you know, it's. I think a lot of it's the nature by which I mean he literally like he literally turned in his scripts and and literally left the country and mm-hmm. and back in those days you you know you just couldn't communicate that well uh, it was harder you know like you couldn't zoom call Schwartz couldn't zoom call Engelhart going <laughs> what do you mean about this ghost leaving this thing for Batman you know I was like is he really dead or not what is the deal here you know and then mm-hmm. and, and, and you know so so Schwartz had to roll with it and say okay well this is a script and. You know, and and so so yeah, I I think you do get the I I think there is a little bit of the rushing out the door here. You know, like uh, you know, it's like well well well, well Steve, what about uh, what about uh, uh, Thorn? It's like oh uh, Thorn, uh, the ghost appears and uh, he scares him into confessing everything. Well, what about Silver? Uh Silver sees Batman fight the Joker and uh, she can't take it, so she runs off. You know, it's <laughs> like you know, so it's kind of like it's like I gotta go, man. That's a cab's outside. I gotta I gotta get to the airport. You know, it's like, you know <laughs> I'm trying trying to think of the listeners tuning into this episode. It's like, let's see. We've got Ryan complaining that a comic book sucks and a lot of like bashing of the DC movies. Boy, this sounds like it could have been a Batman Nightcast episode from two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I do I do have two other complaints about this issue, but we'll kind of take them in turn. So we'll go through it. We've got the first scene, this opening scene, where um, this, this other striking visual, because now we've got another animal infected by the Joker's poison, which is the cat. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think of the first couple of pages of this story when Batman and the, the victim, Thomas, are they've like kind of swapped, uh, swapped places, swapped costumes, and we get the cat attacking him? Well, I do have to say, before we get into that, I, for the, in the interest of fair time, on the inside cover of the original comic... There is a hostess ad uh, that uh, that is called Mira Meets the Mana Men, and it features Mira and Aqualad, not Aquaman. <laughs> so, which I thought's interesting. It's drawn by, you know, so so Rob would probably appreciate that. No Aquaman, but Mira and Aqualad. Although it's drawn by Kurt Swan and inked by Vince Coletta, so I don't know if he appreciates it or not. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, I just thought, you know, Firestorm Aquaman. So there we go. Uh, but no, I, I really like this sequence. I like how the um, the the word balloons are placed to where before you know what's going on, you can read that Jackson's saying what Jackson's saying and Batman's saying what Batman's saying. But then afterwards, you can flip it and say, okay, that was yep. Batman is Jackson and Jackson is Batman. And they kind of did that on the animated series. They didn't show who was talking yes. when that dialogue was going, yep. which I thought was 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 a nice touch. Mm-hmm. And of course, on the animated series, all these guys, you know, they get infected. Batman, you know, gives them an antidote and they calm down. They don't die. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, I, I do think though, they missed an opportunity here to, I mean, the cat looks great. It's, it's really disturbing. And in fact, that might be one reason why you got the Joker holding up the Joker eyes cat on the cover of Legends of the Dark Knight number 50 by Brian mm-hmm. Ballin. Cause mm-hmm. he's, you know, he was fond of the Joker fish putting them in everything. So now he's doing this. So, uh, but, um, looks like the Cheshire cat, you know, 
Um, but um, if they had ended the page, page three, with that panel of Batman's dead head hitting the floor with the Joker grin, mm-hmm. what a page turner that would have been. Oh my God, they really killed Batman. But the way it's staged now, it's like that's the middle of the page. Yeah. And then the panel underneath, you get Batman ripping his shirt open a la Clark Kent. He's still got the the uh, the guy's disguise on. But, you know, you obviously know, okay, that's not really Batman that's dead. The real Batman's in the panel beneath, and he's fine. But if you'd had to turn that page for a split second, you thought, oh, my God, they either just killed Batman or they infected him with the Joker venom, like on the cover, you know. Uh, but uh, so, so you know, I, I, a little, a, you know, it would have been kind of neat if they did that, but they didn't. So I thought I thought it was, uh, it, it, it's a neat sequence, though. I, I also do like that, you know, Batman figures the guy's dead, so I'll just... I'm pissed off. I'll shatter his French doors. I don't care. <laughs> he is really mad. Throws those windows open so hard they shatter and then just like leaps off. And I, I mean, I love those three panels of him breaking the windows and then jumping forward. Actually, I, I didn't even realize what it was at first, but it's it's the door handle just been ripped off of the the frame, like mm-hmm. right in front of him, flying forward. Um, and he leaps over and then just running through kind of the, that wooded area in the rain. That's a great shot, classic shot of, of a hero kind of running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he sees the ghost, which I know you don't like. So. Yep. <laughs> and then we get this little scene of the Joker in his own little hideout, which appears to be like in some mausoleum or crypt inside the cemetery. Um, mm-hmm. But he's got a camera and, and <laughs> access to the, the satellite. So. And he does his whole little thing. We, we the, definitely reinforces the fact that he is evil, but also quite mad and quite insane. Um, and I like how they do the, the the page turn at the bottom with him actually like ripping through the panel to turn it. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I will say that there's a Batman coloring book that came out in like '79 or '80. I have it. I, or, I don't know if I've got a copy of it right now. I had it as a kid though. Uh, but, uh, it's got the Joker on the cover in a straight jacket and he's in behind bars and Batman and Robin are pointing at him. And I think it's the covers drawn by Dick Giordano, but in the story, the Joker does open a restaurant with Joker burgers. (laughs) So that's kind of the, you know, (laughs) it's kind of a sequel, I guess (laughs) Mm -hmm. to this. Yeah. (laughs) Then we get to the scene between Thorn and Silver in the car and, Engelhart has set this up beautifully, and what we know about these characters, there's so much tension and potential danger in this moment that the reader brings to this scene in, in addition. She is a sexy, beautiful woman. She is alone with a man who is in a dangerous state of mind. No one knows where she is. Um, he is a man of power who is used to getting what he wants by force, if need be. If this was written today, the scene would have gone a very different way. <laughs> much, yeah. much, much more gruesome. Much you can you can tell how the scene would have gone. Yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised though that even for this time, he doesn't try to physically hurt her. That he just yeah. kicks her out and kind of gets sick of her. I think this scene would have been better. And again, I'm, I'm being prescriptive here and trying to rewrite Engelhart's script, but I think. He could have been he, – he's so messed up and, and freaked out and and he's violent – gets kind of like hot and bothered by her defense of Batman that he would try to attack her and kind of get taken over by his own, his own rage. 
and she would have to basically fight him off and fight her way to get out of the car. She, she wouldn't get killed, she wouldn't get raped, nothing like that, but it would get nasty, and she would be ter- fearful for her life, and she would have to fight her way to get out of the car and run off into the darkness um, and just barely come across the, that, that plane and everything. Um, I just think that would have been more suspenseful and more effective and more kind of true to the characters. Yeah, I, I think back then part of it too is one, the comics code, and two, I think there was this idea that that even these guys like Thorne had a certain they had certain lines they wouldn't cross. You know, like Thorne has no problem killing a guy that crossed him, but he's not gonna you know, he's not gonna hurt a woman or something. You know, I I, I don't think that rings true. I think anybody that would go to the extremes that Thorne uh, does probably doesn't have that kind of code. Especially if his mental state is deteriorating and he thinks he's being stalked by a ghost. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but I I think there's this this, – but I I think there's this almost romantic – idea of a of the of the gangster to a point you know that that, that still so that might have something to do with it too but i do like you know this could be you know this is definitely rogers you know using his cinematic chops to move the camera around and keep the panels interesting i mean there's even one that's like the camera's literally in the floorboard like looking up i pointed that i have that in my notes like why is the camera beneath the brake pedal like why are we up at his legs his pants yeah we see you put a lot of zip tone effect into his pants and we see like her like the bottom of her jaw and below i was like what can't you show their faces like why do we have to be down here for this scene yeah and he's like the one panel's got you know uh, the last panel on the page has his cigar blocking out half of Silver's face, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but it, but it does keep it interesting. It's not just talking heads, you know. Right. Just that's that's boring, yeah. And I did, I you know, I never, I've had this these comics for you know thirty some years at this point, but I never noticed before that uh, that the on the on page eight that it says you know scree uh, the 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 scree is written underneath the car the sound of the brakes. <laughs> So I thought that that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's another another one of his little sound effects he's worked into the panel. Uh, but uh, you know, just boy, it sure is lucky that that Silver found a air a little air hanger there. And and would that guy really fly in this weather? I probably not. <laughs> and the fact that he gets from Ohio to Gotham City in less than an hour because then she's going to take a cab through the city to get to the like the location where Batman is. It's like, oh, okay. We're, Boy, Steve, you were really you were really writing this one on your way to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you don't like the the uh, the idea of the ghost, but I will say the panels mm-hmm. where the ghost comes through the car. I mean, it looks like you're you feel like you're sitting in the back seat and you're watching this. It's kind of it's very very again. I'll keep using the word cinematic, but that's what it is. I mean, there's these long, wide panels, and you know, there's this amorphous kind of looks like a hitchhiker on the road and the next thing it's the ghost and then it's on top of him choking him and And i like supernatural stories i like horror stories i like stories with ghosts but this feels like an intrusion of a supernatural element into a world and a story that hasn't had that up to this point with no clear explanation or set of rules for why this thing is why this ghost why of all things like I just I, I wanted a little bit more of an explanation of why this is if it's not just in his head, but it does look cool. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, I, I will say one of the problems I have with this one is, and I know they and you said 
they were taking shifts at this this third guy's house that we never get his name. I don't think uh, this third paper pusher at the at the copyright office. But is it just me or does it seem a little insulting that Gordon is napping at this guy's house? It's like, yeah, I know you're marked for death, but you mind if I crash on your couch for 45 minutes? You know, it's like, dude, you know, you're the freaking police commissioner. You're in charge here. Like, can you can you drink some coffee and keep your ass up, Jim? I mean, would that be too much to ask? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Batman's like, you know, did you get any sleep, Commissioner? It's like, you know, yeah, he should have been like, did you get any sleep, Commissioner? Lazy mother. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Jim, come on, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, uh, he could go home and put another cop on this on, on this thing in charge of this operation to keep this guy. You know, there are chiefs, deputy chiefs, captains, lieutenants, other people who can supervise this operation. Yeah, if he's that tired. Yeah, exactly. Especially yeah. given the fact that once Batman and the Joker start to fight, none of the cops do anything. There's I like, know. There's six cops in this room with the Joker, and they just watch him go to the window. Yeah, that that one, that panel in particular, I know which the panel, the third panel on page 11, Batman's in the distance that's standing in front of the hole he just punched in the wall. Uh, there's a cop in the foreground and I'm assuming it's maybe the guy that they were protecting because the cop's got his hands on him, Mm -hmm. but the guy's got his gun, his revolver in his hand. He, all he literally had to do was point at the Joker and shoot and the Joker be dead. I mean, just take him out, man. You know, it's like Batman ain't supposed to be able to kill him. Cops can kill him. Just shoot him. You know, just 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 shoot the damn bastard and get it over with. You know, I mean, I know we don't want the Joker to die and everything, but at the same time, it, it's a little too. It looks a little too easy. I, there, there wasn't enough confusion in that panel to make it look like the Joker should be able to get away. Well, that's. I mean, the question that comes up, like, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker every time he lets the Joker live? That like the future blood is on Batman's hands. Like the Joker would have been killed by the cops. He would have been executed. Doesn't matter. Like they're like whatever state Gotham is. If they don't have the death penalty, he wouldn't have been found insane nineteen times in the court. He would have been put to death, or some rogue cop would have just shot him or stepped on him, and the cops would have gotten away with it because their unions would protect him. So don't blame Batman for letting him live. Like the state, the state would have found a way to kill the Joker long ago. Right, right. I do like before we, you know, we moved on, but I do like that the, when the Joker reveals himself, he says, "Pre-recorded for this time zone." I love that little <laughs> panel. He's got his finger wagging in the air. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great little, a great little panel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I am a sucker for the the acid squirting. I mean, it comes from just like remembering how much I love the, the, the toy and the original movie. Just anytime if he's got a flower or something else, just squirting acid out of something on his chest. It's just a fun little effect of the Jokers that I like as much as the Batarang or the Batmobile or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it, exactly yeah, and it, again, it should have been should have been what the Joker, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> foiled himself with at the end, I yeah, think. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I do like, you know, Marshall Rogers loves his his uh, fire escapes, and, and the, the fight on the fire escapes really cool. And we get another one of those instances where he puts the the uh, the onomatopoeia into the pan into the object because yep. Batman kicks it from underneath and it goes clang. It's got clang written on the bottom of it, which is a nice touch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, page twelve, the second panel. I love that image of of the Joker hiding behind the ladder and Batman coming up in front of him with the lightning in the background. That's just that's mm-hmm. a great looking image. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's you know he. I think he pretty much recreated that image in a from a different angle on that on one of the Shadow of the Batman covers. So probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. And then yeah, the fight they they fight across the rooftops and, and swing to the girder and the lucky construction building across the street and gosh yeah you like such a simple such a simple rewrite that you suggested that would have made this so much better and more palatable for me. I, you know, and another thing, it's kind of interesting. I think I've always had a little problem with page fourteen. It looks beautiful where Batman because we see Batman leap. Mm-hmm. And and it, because we read left to right, you know, and you know, uh, American readers do. We, you know, you go to from Batman, and then you see the girder, and the Joker's not on it. And it's basically because Rogers has put the final panel in the background. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and it's and it's a little. I have to remind myself to read it to ignore everything in the background <laughs> until I get to the, the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, to the last, because Batman leaps, then it shows him on the, the skeleton of the building, the Joker gets electrocuted, then there's a panel of Batman from behind Batman over his shoulder as the Joker falls, and then the the, the rest of the page is the, is the whole structure of the building looking from the river up, Yep. Air, and, and, and you see the, the girder, the splashdown, of the, jo- the yeah. splashdown, yeah, it's, it's it, you've got, I always have to remind myself, so... It looks beautiful, but I don't think it really works. You know, because I, I have to remind myself every time to read it that way. <laughs> I agree because I didn't. I didn't even read it that way until now. I I thought he just forgot to draw the Joker on the girder, or there was a second girder. I, it's oh, only okay. now when you pointed out, I was like, oh yeah, the background is all one image. I didn't even realize it. Yeah, so it doesn't work. <laughs> it looks gorgeous. The, the The figure of Batman leaping honestly could be used on like merchandise and stuff mm-hmm. as well. But yeah, it just yeah, yeah. Uh, then um, we get the silver. <laughs> yeah, and it's good. I mean, this is it's 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 funny because like sort of retroactively, we have seen scenes like this. We have seen moments like this play out in other superhero stories, where the love interest knows the secret, but she can't live in this world. She like, I mean, this was. Sort of, I mean, I, I think actually like the the Rachel Dawes moment in in Batman Begins, but uh, like it also reminds me of other superhero movies where it's like. Like, this is the woman, the love interest who doesn't want to be the wife of a cop or a firefighter, knowing that every time they leave, they might die. And, and that's a, a terrible burden to put on somebody. And mm-hmm. they're like, I, I, this isn't what I want. This isn't the relationship I want. I can't be this for you. Um, right. So it's, I mean, it's it's heartfelt. It's tragic. It's sincere. I like the way this plays out. Um, I, I like the dialogue in this. Yeah, I, I think it's I, you know, and I, I don't think Silver comes across as being weak no. or anything like that. I mean, what she, what her reasons are completely valid. Uh, you know, she did not sign up <laughs> to date the Batman. Right. Uh, she was dating Bruce Wayne, and I mean, she doesn't hold it against him that she kept a secret from him. You know, from her, she doesn't. You know, she understands why he didn't tell her, but at the same time, you know, she's like, okay, I, I had no idea you were this masked vigilante who risks his life every night. So, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I'm just not okay with that. I love you. I love you, but I'm not, you know, I, I love you too much to, to, to deal with that. So I'm, I'm just going to walk away. You know, plus at this point, she's seen it twice between Deadshot and the Joker. She's seen right. him fighting for his life and barely surviving. So, right. Yeah. She, she knows. She's... Right. Exactly. Yep. And then the Gordon comes in to announce that, you know, <laughs> the other problem has been solved on its own. And then the sun comes up 
And the last image. Ah. The lens flare. Yeah, I was going to say it's the J.J. Abrams lens flare. It's so distracting. <laughs> yeah, I've never liked it. I'll be honest. I've never liked the lens flare. I, I love Marshall Rogers. You guys know he's, he's he's one of my favorite Batman artists. I mean, on any given day, he might be my favorite Batman artist, period. But I've always felt like the lens flare was just a touch. It, it, it just, it, you know, nowadays they could do it where it was an overlay and you could see Batman beyond, through it. Not Batman mm-hmm. beyond. <laughs> Batman through it. It would be semi-transparent, and it would work. But the way it is now, I mean, when I first read it as a kid, I'm like, is that a scope? Is somebody trying to shoot him? Yeah, dead you shot's know back. I mean? <laughs> dead shot's back. Yeah, it's like dead shot coming back in the next issue. Uh, you know, it, it, I, it. I didn't get it for a long time. You know, the first time I read it, I'm like, well, I don't like that last that last page. And, I, I, and my initial reaction is still the same. You know, I mean, it's... I would have much rather just had a beautiful, unobscured shot of Marshall Rogers' Batman swinging away without that J.J. Abrams lens flare, yeah. Mm. So. <laughs> so, ultimately, I think this is, as I said, this is still an, an entertaining issue. I think it is a, it's very cool that it sort of, like, wraps up this storyline. I just think that there were just too many things that Engelhart, like, he cheated the resolution of too many of these storylines. It just, it really bothers me. So I can't say, I can't say this is a good issue, but it manages to be fun and fast-paced and, and engaging and sort of bring a lot of these story threads to a close. So eh, for me, for me, this issue is a disappointment, but it's not Max Allen Collins disappointing. <laughs> oh no, no. I mean, it's still, it, it, yeah. And I, and I, and I, I don't feel as strongly as you do. And, and you know, and, and these things have never bothered me. Mm-hmm. Now that you've pointed them out, they do kind of bother me more. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. But no, uh, <laughs> no, no. But I mean, I, I don't think I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I don't I don't think what you're saying is and, and, and whether I thought you were wrong or not doesn't change whether, you know, you're completely entitled to, to your take on this. But but I, I I can totally see where you're coming from. I you know what you've pointed out, the 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 problems are they're there. I mean, I, I think they're there. I mean, now that you've pointed them out, I'm like, yeah, you know, all this. Uh, the the bit was strange that doesn't bother me so bad. The the vapor meter thing is kind of especially because they didn't. They also didn't do a very good job of showing Batman having it in his hand when he was in that house either. I think if they'd shown him like actively checking people with it, you know, that that's then that falls down to Rogers, not you know, you know. Yeah, I mean, you can see it in his hand, but it's tiny and it's mm-hmm. it's not colored well in either version that I was looking at. So. But uh, yeah, I, I get it. I I do feel like it's a satisfactory ending for the for the overall arc. I don't feel like it lives up to the first part. Like I said, I, I never felt like that. I, you know, I, I feel like it's a bit of a letdown. The the lightning strike into the Joker is definitely, uh, you know, I've always felt that's like a bit of a cop out. It's just it's just a bit too it's just a bit too much to to ask for. And but um, but yeah, you know, but over you know, I mean. I think overall, you know, I think we found, in my opinion, and I don't know, maybe this changes it for you because of the way you feel about this issue. Overall, I do feel like this run lives up to to the hype around it. I, I personally do. I, I feel like, you know, Englehart, um, you know, he, he thought he was leaving comics. He wanted a shot at Batman. This was going to be his definitive Batman. I, you know, I give him a lot of credit for bringing back a lot of the, the Golden Age feel uh, you know, just the elements of the Golden Age comics from from the, the the lettering and and you know the the captions to 
characters and and just that that mysterioso feel about okay. things that 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 Bob Kane and Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson and Sheldon Maldoff and all those guys created in the early days. He brought that back, you know, and and, and you know, and if if O'Neill and Adams hadn't done their thing a few years before, he probably wouldn't have been able to. Um, so I, you know, I, I, you know, and, and then the artwork, you know, and getting Marshall Rogers and, and Terry Austin, um, you know, I, you know, they ended up being two of the, you know, the greatest Batman artists that, that combo and, and Rogers, I mean, even sometimes without Austin, um, you know, one of the greatest Batman artists. So I, I think it, I think it definitely, I think it definitely lives up to its legend overall, in my opinion. What do you think? I agree. I, I like this run a lot. I think, um, they they try to do a lot of things. I don't think they stick every landing perfectly, but I think part of that is just the, the Englehart's circumstances as he was kind of writing this fairly quickly all at once and not really going through the, the normal revision process and the editorial process was a little bit different for the storyline that maybe some of these things could have been changed if they had more time. Um, Rogers and Austin are great. They bring this sort of crazy energy and vitality and new dynamic layouts and designs to these things that really elevate this. At the same time, they were very young, early on and young in their career, so not every not everything works. We've pointed out there there were some misses in the art, but overall, it's great. It's very fun. Even going back to the first two issues with Walt Simonson, I like that a lot. Again, bring this energy. I think Englehart, as we have said, he brought a a much-needed sense of melodrama and character-focused subplots um, that really humanized Batman and Bruce Wayne in a way that was kind of lacking in the book for a long time, and it wasn't just what's today's mystery. It wasn't just, you know, know, one of those things where he's just the detective who's going to solve the mystery, and that's the whole story. We actually get this running plot of how is his life affected by this and what happens when you introduce things into his world that he's not used to, like a love interest, like the city's government turning against him. And these are just really exciting things. I wish some of them had played out differently or they had gotten a bit more time to breathe, but you have to make those sacrifices to see Dr. Phosphorus and the Joker and Deadshot do their thing. Um, but yeah, overall, this this run, it's not perfect, but it's really, really good, and it's really worth its reputation as one of the best, you know, continuing stories and sagas in the Batman's history. Yeah, I, I think so, and and you know, it's it's pretty influential because you know, Lynn Wein will continue the whole you know character driven subplots and. Uh, you know, he he brings back Selena Kyle as a love interest, and and you know where Wayne came from Marvel as well. Recently, he might have brought that whether Englehart had done it or not. I don't know. You know, he probably would have, but you know, in, either way, Englehart got there first, and and then you you know then after him, Marv Wolfman comes on for a bit, and then Jerry Conway and Doug Minch, all these guys that spent more a lot of time at Marvel, they continue this kind of Marvelization of Batman. There's a lot of a lot of love interest from bringing Vicky Vale back to to Alfred's daughter Julia to Nocturna and you know all up through the era we started with on Nightcast, um, you know this this kind of feel kind of stays. You know this this kind of approach to Batman, is, you know eight years later is still still going until mm-hmm. Crisis. Mm-hmm. So I mean, obviously they felt like it worked, you know, and and they stuck with it. And, uh, you know, like we've said before, very influential on the movies, which, of course, Englehart was involved in the early drafts of the Batman movie at one point. But 
you know, he's pointed out there's lots of elements from his stories and even movies beyond the 89 Batman movie. And and so, yeah, this is this is a very influential, very important storyline in Batman. And honestly, it's probably still one of my favorite runs. Uh, you know, you know, I, I kind of feel like when we did the Bar Davis run, I still really enjoy it. But I felt like mostly because of the problems we had with year two, even though Davis, you know, bailed on that after the first part. I feel like that kind of brought that run down mm-hmm. in my estimation. Basically, year two did a lot of damage to my goodwill toward that run. Yes. But with this one, despite some issues with the ending, I still feel like this is probably one of my favorite Batman runs. So, yeah. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to take another promo break right now, but we will be back in a moment with your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. The Justice League wouldn't help us. So Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders! Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehunterspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are the Outcasters because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Just peeking behind the curtain a little bit, we are recording this segment a couple of days later than when we recorded the rest of this episode. Uh, And what I have been doing just recently before we started this one is I have been looking at pages of something that you and I talked about briefly a couple of months ago. Uh, Fantastic Four Antithesis, Issue 1, written by Mark Wade and drawn by Neil Adams. Uh, you kind of mentioned this. Uh, the, the first issue came out today. I have not read it, but I have looked through the pages, and uh, I'm excited to read this. And it, it got me thinking, um, I, I haven't read Batman Odyssey or Neil Adams' newer stuff with Superman and Batman, so I haven't read those. I've seen some of the art, and it didn't do a lot for me. And I've, I, I mean, I just kind of naturally assumed I think it's probably because... I am comparing that to the way Adams drew Batman and Superman in the 70s. I mean, how could you not? And those are some of the most famous images of those characters ever. When I look at just like pages from Batman Odyssey, I'm like, okay, it kind of, it just feels off. It feels weird to me. Mm-hmm. Looking at this issue where the style is pretty much the same, I don't have that reservation. It's because I I haven't seen Adams draw the Fantastic Four before, not in like a sustained way, like a story about them. Um, so seeing him draw the thing, yeah, his thing looks a little bit weird, a little bit off model, but you can still tell who it is. The way he draws Reed stretching looks great. Sue looks hot. Um, Johnny also hot. Go figure. <laughs> um, it, yeah, I mean, it looks cool. I, I'm I'm excited just to see 
a, a brand new story. I mean, first written by Mark Wade, who's one of my favorite Fantastic Four writers. Uh, a story set in kind of a classic era for them with classic villains that we've seen before, um, and, but drawn in a style that feels sort of familiar, but is also really different because I've just never seen Adams draw this. So this is a, this is a cool book. I'm excited to read this one. And I just I thought of that because we mentioned that with the Adams connection a couple of episodes ago. Cool. I'm going to have to check that out. I've seen uh, artwork online, particularly on 13th Dimension, and and I and I like what I see too. The only yeah, but his thing is a little. He, he reminds me of the costume for the from the Corman movie a little bit. <laughs> yes, uh, which is not a bad. I mean that that's actually a pretty that's a really good thing costume really. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, you know, other than that, it, it, it's uh, you know everything looks. I'm, I'm with you. It's I think that's I think you're I think you've cracked the code there. That's exactly right. It's because he he doesn't have. A reputation, a, a legacy with the Fantastic Four. I think he only drew them that in that you know in an Avengers issue or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to check that. I'm glad you reminded me. It's out. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna text my uh, LCS owner Steve here in a minute. And say, hey man, pull one of those and put it in my file. So. Yeah, I, I mean, not to spoil anything, but um, he maybe draws suit naked at one point. And I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm channeling my inner shag here. So just... There you go. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our listener feedback section. Uh, people, last episode we covered Detective Comics 473 and 474, wherein Batman took on the Penguin and Deadshot by the same creative team that we've just been talking about, Inglehart, Rogers, and Austin. As always, we got tons of great support on social media, which we always, always appreciate. Keep it coming. We love that. Uh, Over on the Fire & Water website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com, we got lots of great comments, and also one from Clinton Robison from Coffee & Comics uh, blog and podcast. And Clinton said, I kind of want the Deadshot signal to shine when there are sales at Target. Thank you for putting that in my head, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) That's going to replace the blue light special at Kmart. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Robert Smith wrote in to say, I believe that the actor Chris was trying to recall when referring to Mr. Reed's attitude was Gail Gordon from Our Miss Brooks, Dennis the Menace, and every Lucy show after I Love Lucy. Yes, definitely that was Gail Gordon. You know, was, camera! Uh, Robert also thanked us for saying the pudgy purveyor of perfidy. Yeah, you that's must... right for the filmation cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> Got to say it like Ted Knight, you know, the pudgy purveyor of perfidy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian Linton said, I particularly enjoyed the dynamic between Bruce and Dick in the first issue. As for why Robin didn't return to help Batman after the Titans disbanded, he was probably busy reading classified ads looking for another teen superhero group to lead. <laughs> there you go. It's like, hmm, young allies? No. That's like, boy commandos? No. <laughs> uh, Gord Tolton implored DC to just film this run, saying, the work has all been done for you. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there, Gord. You know, try something different, guys. Just adapt this story. You know, just straight up, just do it. That's a good idea. That would make, this would make, forget the movies. Since DC Universe is probably going away, turn this into a – it's going to be HBO Max, isn't it? An HBO Max series. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. It's not going to be Netflix. It'll be HBO Max. So there you go. Right, right. 
Uh, Captain Entropy, discussing why the Penguin gave Batman clues to his crimes, said, Perhaps the Penguin's renowned integrity and sense of fair play forced him to play the game straight. No, that don't make no sense at all, as they say back home. Maybe it's about Penguin's ego, and he played it straight to gain the satisfaction of fairly outsmarting the world's greatest detective? I don't know. Lawton's plan of I'll just shoot him seems elegantly simple by comparison. (laughs) When I was 10, my brother was 17, and he had basically the same angsty rift with our father that Dick had with Bruce for chunks of the 70s and 80s, depending upon the creative team, the phase of the moon, and of course, sunspot activity. Back then, Dad tended to channel the Batman's attitude whenever John Waynes was unavailable, and my brother was often distracted by his desire to go down to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters, or possibly to meet some girl, which is more understandable. I never saw the draw for those power converters. Anyway, for this reason, I never found the rift unrealistic. For the same reason, I was happy to get any respite from it, like the one we get here. Yeah, I, I'm the one that I guess kind of called that on it. And let me tell you, I, as somebody who has an 18 year old son, I totally get it. I, to- I totally get, <laughs> I totally get it, guys. I, I mean, it's not unrealistic for there to be some disagreements and this and that. But I think I just think they've swung so far the other way. Usually at this point, I mean, it's just like everything. You know, once somebody. It's, it's it's just like it's just like the epic beatdown of, of you know that we talked about. You know, once Batman beats the hell out of one guy and maims him, then he's got to do that every time. Now, you know, it's just because Bruce and Dick argue and you know almost come to blows, and they got to do it every time. You know, and it, it's that that's it. It's not unrealistic. It's just tiresome, basically. <laughs> Reading this comment convinced me that. On the planet Tatooine, power converters is a name for loose women. So when Luke says we were going to Tashi Station to pick up power converters, he wasn't talking about some equipment that would help moisture farming. (laughs) Uh, Captain Entropy then added, One correction from the previous comments section, Browning was not guilty of war profiteering, to my knowledge. The Axis started issuing their 9mm semi-autos after the Blitzkrieg conquered a factory in Belgium, so any aid and comfort to the enemy was presumably under great duress. Uh, that's good. That yeah, that helps. But we, we cleared the Browning Company. That that that's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they're not they're not like Tony Stark's company was at the beginning of the Iron Man movie series. That's good. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I saw I saw a video. I'm getting totally off topic. Saw a video that that uh, it was on Screen Crush, and they were suggesting, you know, was Obadiah Stane uh, uh, was he a Hydra agent? Hmm. And I'm like. Yeah, that makes total sense, you know. So going back, I've retroactively said in my head canon, yeah, he was working for Hydra. So yeah, it actually yeah. does work. Yeah, so uh, totally off topic for Batman, but I just thought I'd bring it up. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, if Hydra had Tony's parents killed, it makes mm-hmm. sense that they would set up his father's replacement with Obadiah. Yep, it does, yeah. Okay, getting back on topic, Andrew Leyland from the Palace of Glittering Delights and the Overlooked Dark Knight said, well, it's kind of on topic, Whitney Ellsworth in Deadwood is played by Jim Beaver, better known as Bobby in Supernatural. Beaver is a big fan of the 50 Superman show and was working on a book about the show and George Reeves. He served as a consultant on Hollywoodland. Apparently his character, by coincidence, was named Ellsworth, and Beaver asked he be named Whitney after Ellsworth. So, oh, there you go. There's the secret origin of the Deadwood character, Whitney Ellsworth. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. that I didn't is, know, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't, That's great. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't either. He was consultant on Hollywood Land. So that's and Rob and I covered Hollywood Land on Film and Water many years ago. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Andy provided a link to an interview with Jim Beaver about his upcoming Reeves book. So that's still forthcoming. So that'll be cool. I'll be interested to read that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Siskoid, who hosts many, many shows here on the Fire and Water Network, said, Deadshot has one of the strangest career tracks in comics history. Yeah, definitely. Uh, If he hadn't been turned into a disposable supervillain type, he wouldn't have wound up in Suicide Squad and thus become one of DC's most popular and complex villains. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's... It's kind of funny we had that talk earlier about the Suicide Squad movie, and of course, there's no Deadshot in the new Suicide Squad movie because uh, I guess Will Smith didn't want to come back. They didn't want him back. I don't know what that. That's kind of strange, though, really. Yeah, so, they got um, who is Idris Elba playing Bloodsport? Bloodsport, yeah, yeah. that the guy that could teleport weapons and yeah. In, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I bet he's sh- sh- shooting up the logo of the super the Superman logo on his first appearance cover. I can see it right now. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> I, I have a feeling he's playing a very similar type, and James Gunn's script probably allowed for basically the same type of character. And if they couldn't get Will Smith back, we'll substitute this guy in. And it's yeah, yeah. I have a feeling it'll be it'll be very much the same. So, which probably is unfortunate because so. I think that is a waste of Idris Elba's talent, but. Me too. Then again, I have that, no idea. Maybe he'll be maybe he'll be the, a breakout character coming out of that movie. Who knows? So yeah, he might have his own Bloodsport uh, HBO Max series before this is over with. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Gothos Mansion said, "I'm going to disagree with you about the cover to Detective Number Four Seventy Three. At a convention in 1994, I picked up a very nice copy of the original issue in a dollar bin. I really only bought it to get the cover since I had the story reprinted in Shadow of the Batman." The two guys who were with me, neither of whom were familiar with Rogers, were blown away by the cover and couldn't wait to crack it open and look at the interiors. I've seen the cover without text in Batman Gallery, and I think there would have been too much blank space at the top without the logo. I do wish the scroll with the Shadow of the Penguin text had been omitted. As for the guy on the cover looking like Len Wein, kind of makes me wonder if Rogers drew it months after the issue was completed. We know that Rogers hated working from Wein's Marvel-style script, so maybe he drew this cover after he began working with Ween. If you notice, one of the crooks at the beginning of Detective Number 478 looks like Ween, too. Yeah, I, I did remember that. Uh, maybe Rogers was getting out his frustrations with Ween and his art. I hate that the two of them didn't like working together because I'm a huge fan of both. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Det- yeah. I, I had number- no idea that, they, that he didn't like working with Ween. Yeah, I, I'd heard that. I just heard that recently. I, I mean, I think just in the past. Well, it might have been that Batcave Companion book, but I think it comes up in some of the the Steve Englehart interviews and stuff I've read. You know that he did like working from the full scripts that Englehart left. Of course, he left them because he was leaving town. You know, he had to leave it implicit instructions. You know, right? The, then, the, you know, explicit instructions. But then in the late yeah. '80s, when they teamed up again on Silver Surfer, I wonder how they did it. I wonder if Steve was writing full script there for him. I don't know. I, I, my understanding was I thought Steve Englehart like preferred to work full script, which was kind of anti Marvel. But maybe, maybe, maybe when he was at maybe when he was at Marvel, he he did you know when in Rome, you know maybe I don't know. <laughs> so maybe I mean I, I think I think by then it was a lot more common. I mean back then, I mean by that point you know Roy Thomas wasn't editor and he he hadn't been editor in chief for a long time, and I think a lot of the practices that Stan and Roy had shepherded were probably going by. It was probably up to the artist and writer or, or maybe the editor, however they wanted to work it out. But I'm sure if Steve Engler wanted to write full script, I don't think anybody would give him any problem with that unless the unless the artist wanted more of a plotting 
contribution to it. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good, good point, yeah. Uh, Gothos continued, Detective 474 is one of my favorite Batman covers, period. I kind of wish the Deadshot's Revenge text had been left off. Usually I might think the orangish background was a little too garish, but I think it made Deadshot's face pop. With this being the extra unplanned issue, I do feel like it is the only one that suffers from a pacing issue. Batman's fight with Deadshot ends too abruptly. Still, the eight-issue arc itself is just so well-paced. The series really deserves all the praise it gets. Yeah, I can kind of see, yeah, it, like we said, the, you know, the way Batman, you know, like you said, Deadshot's supposed to be this expert shot, and he never gets anywhere close to Batman, but, you know, we explained it away with his, his mental block, I guess. So. <laughs> given, given how much of that issue was devoted, and I think very well, very appropriately and brilliantly done, to the Bruce and and Silver of it all, and and they're kind of like her her putting things together and her, her kind of grilling him and scrutinizing him. Given how well that was done, I do think, as I said, the way it kind of played out was a little bit rushed in this last issue, but still still good. I, I still think that subplot of Bruce and Silver was a surprisingly enjoyable and really, really well done subplot string throughout this entire series, and I like that a lot. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Your Deadshot cover chat interested me especially. I had never realized that the mask was meant to be reflective. I took the image as symbolic. It's shaped like cloth, not metal. Whatever is going on, it's magnificent. Issues 474 through 476 had the best three covers of the run. Rogers was much better at panel-to-panel storytelling than cover compositions. Heck, I've had 473 since it came out, and I never even noticed that bloomin' big bent pengy shadow until today the image is so cluttered, even with the blurb mentioning the shadow of the penguin. Mind, if you're going to say a shadow is being cast over someone, actually have it on them. That bright, brightly clad Robin is spectacularly unshadowed. So <laughs> Martin is on my side of the cover debate, and uh, Gotho's Mansion is on yours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I like the cover. I don't think it's the best one in the bunch. But yeah, that is true. Robin, yeah, the whole... The, he's not there's no shadows over him at all yeah. so <laughs> uh martin said anyway great show i enjoyed these two issues with the highlight being the other shoe dropping for silver once she twigged bruce was batman i just knew she was dead meat which would be a rotten shame get her to give up the cancer sticks and she's perfect <laughs> you know at the same time you know this is right before we see margot kidder's lois lane smoking so mm-hmm. you know it's kind of interesting you know i mean she didn't smoke in the comics obviously lois didn't but it is kind of i, I you know that's that's i wonder how many good girls you know like the villainesses smoke cigarettes and like a cigarette holder a lot of times and mm-hmm. but i wonder how many you know love interests smoke cigarettes back back in the day so yeah, good question yeah uh, Gold Dragon seventy one said, "I was initially upset that you guys changed the format of the show. That being said, I'm really loving the current crop of Batman comics you guys are covering. Lately, I've been rereading this run on Comicsology and/or the DC Universe service, and really enjoying your discussions. Your reading of Death at Midnight and Three is particularly enjoyable, as I really love that story, and you guys did a fantastic job of making an audio book of it. Well, thank you. Okay. Uh, yes, now about Michael Keaton returning as Batman." <sighs> I'm not really on board for this for a couple of reasons. First, let me be clear. I am and always have been a huge fan of Michael Keaton. 
when he was first cast as Batman, I had already seen a bunch of films with him where he either got into a fight or had intense scenes with someone, so I had no trouble accepting him as someone who could believably pull off the Dark Knight. The fact that Keaton doesn't usually play an idiot helped as well. As to why I don't feel enthusiastic about his return, well, there are three real reasons. First, Flashpoint. I'm sick to death of Flashpoint. We've already had three versions of it, the comic, the animated feature, and the CW adaptation. We don't need any more. We get it. John's put a lock on his retcon, giving Barry Allen a Batman-style childhood trauma so that no other writers could undo it without rewriting all of DC history. Second, it smells of stunt casting to draw in extra interest for a film that many comic film fans are unenthusiastic about to begin with. Now, I'm a huge Flash fan myself. I was waiting for a Flash film to be made several times over the past 30 years since the 90s series wrapped. As the DCEU started to take shape and we started getting the standalone films after Justice League, it became a bit more of a reality that we were finally getting it made. Except, well, delay after delay, then COVID, then the choking incident, and yes, the fact that rather than doing a straight origin story, it would be yet another rendition of Flashpoint. Yawn. So after CW hit several home runs of nostalgia feel-goods with Robert Wool, Burt Ward, and John Wesley Shipp as 1990 Flash, it was inevitable that someone would say, this is what the movie fans want. They don't want the current actors. They want the old guys. So they rushed to get Michael Keaton signed, not because he's a great actor who would do well in the role, but because it fills the nostalgia quota that WB thinks is their golden goose. Third, at best, Keaton's role will be either a cameo or a supporting role. When they hype this kind of casting so early on, it sounds like he's going to be the most important member of the cast, even more so than the titular character. First of all, that's bad because it's no longer about pulling in new fans with a young actor in a movie about a hero that's never, that never got one. It's now about pulling in 40 to 50-year-olds watching their cinematically established hero take the spotlight from the character who's supposed to be the film's lead. And for all that effort of getting Keaton to sign and maybe even getting him to agree to wearing an updated version of his old suit for at best one scene, the finished product never lives up to the hype. Well, that's a lot to chew on. Uh, but, you know, apparently they have said that Michael Keaton's part will be significant. You know, it won't just be a cameo, but we'll we'll see, Gold Dragon. I don't if it ever gets made. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah I I agree with all of his points. Um, I, I think I think the success of movies like the Avengers and the shared universe and and everything that's gone has really pushed Warner Brothers and DC to try and cram a lot of characters into these movies and do crossovers and and that's why I think they rushed things like Suicide Squad and why the Harley sequel was a Birds of Prey. They called it Birds of Prey, but it was really just Harley with some other characters that if you've read comics, you might have recognized their names. That's why, you know, with Black Adam, they're introducing all these other JSA characters. The Stargirl TV show, you look at the poster for it, it's got like 13 JSA characters or or other characters. They keep, I, I think they keep throwing all of these other superheroes and trying to build these team and ensemble things because they think that will attract the most eyes, the most interest and they think people are buying into this team thing. And maybe that's working. Maybe that's that's what is going to help them pay off. And I, I don't know. Um, to me, it just kind of smacks of lack of confidence in, in the source. I mean, the fact that you're doing a Flash movie and you need two Batman in it, yeah. in it to get to... Uh, well, we'll see. 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm with you. And, you know, I, having listened to Rob's interview with Alex Ross on Treasury Cast, you know, he, he, you know, he basically said that, you know, DC desperately wanted to be Marvel. Um, you know, the, in, in the 70s, that's why they started like they killed off Aqua Baby. They killed off Iris West. You know, they felt like they had to inject this 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 Marvel type drama into the comics. And of course, we're covering a run where Steve Englehart, you know, did inject Marvel style storytelling into it. But he didn't break the toys, right. you know, and I mean, he put everything back in the box when he got done. So it could be done. But I I think, you know, that was a case of D.C., wanting to be Marvel, and we still got DC wanting to be Marvel 45 years later. So, (laughs) wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tim Price, who is now podcasting about Batman and the Outsiders over on the Outcasters podcast, which is on the Right On Network. Uh, Timmy said, Deadshot's costume, I've always liked it, and the intro in issue 474 was done really well. I was definitely overdue reading that issue, being a fan of Ostrander's Suicide Squad. You know, that's something, you know, something I haven't gone back and reread in a long time is that Deadshot miniseries that, that Ostrander and Luke McDonald did. But I remember, I remember buying it, but I just, I, I remember it being good, but I haven't, I haven't read it in a long time. I'm surprised, I wonder if that's in, I wonder if that's been traded lately. I bet you it was when the Suicide Squad movie, the first one came out, but and, I, I could, or, you know. I mean, that, I don't, I don't know how far along it got, but they did, gosh, they did like five or seven Suicide Squad trade paperbacks when that movie was coming out. They were churning them out like to a year. Mm. Uh, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if that Deadshot miniseries was included in one of those. Maybe not. They might have separated it. Um, yeah, you might be right. But yeah, I, yeah, I'd have to look. I've never read the miniseries, but yeah. David A. Scudieras said, there's another heavy pro story. George Perez wrote one in Who Killed Mindy Mayer? That that was in Wonder Woman number 20. It was a police report with very flowery prose and limited word balloons. David added, you know who would make a great 70s Batman? John Saxon. And wouldn't Brandon Lee have made the perfect Dick Grayson? <laughs> Didn't John Saxon yeah. just die recently? Yeah, he did. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, he did. Yeah, John Saxon actually would have been a good Batman. He he definitely had that uh, he had that stern look and that jaw, you know, and mm-hmm. he obviously could handle action. Uh and, uh, yeah, Brandon Lee would have made a perfect Dick Grayson. He would have made a perfect uh, Nightwing. I'm thinking about that movie Rapid Fire that yeah. he had out. That was a good action movie. And I was like, oh, that was right before The Crow. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of what I knew him for. I was like, oh, this guy's playing The Crow. That's awesome. And then, you know, oh, awful yeah. uh, what happened. But, uh, yeah, he would have been a good Dick Grayson. He's right. Uh, Damien Droy Whiter said, I'm a huge fan of Steve Englehart, but I think he tends to overstate his influence on the Tim Burton Batman movie. I've seen him repeatedly state that Kim Basinger is playing a renamed Silver St. Cloud. I've even seen him claiming that Vicki Vale was too obscure for the film to pick up. Englehart clearly didn't read the Doug Munch run. Englehart's run is influential, but it's not unprecedented. My favorite case of someone overstating their influence is Neil Adams. Hey, we were just talking about him. Mm-hmm. I, now, now, hang on. If he's about to assert that Neil Adams has some sort of ego, I'm going to stop this podcast. <laughs> Damien said, I read an interview where he says everyone who does X-Men just copies his run by doing Magneto, the Sentinels, and Kazar. Um, Neil, Jack Kirby did that X-Men run nearly ten years before you. Maybe they're not copying you. Anyway, I can't wait for your coverage of the Joker story next. Well, you just got it. I, I hope we did okay. I, I know I was a little bit more critical, but... 
Uh, I hope we'll get the Grant Wagner Brayfogle detective soon, and I'd love to see you cover more of the early 80s stories, particularly the Len Wein and Walter Simonson Joker birthday story, which would be a great follow-up to The Laughing Fish. Mm, I'd be down for that one. I bought that comic right off the stands, man. That was a great one. Uh, you know what? We could partner that one up with the other issue that I've been wanting to cover, maybe for November or December this year. Uh, Ooh, that's a good one. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, we definitely do want to get to some of the Grant and Wagner and Bray Fogel stuff. Um, hopefully early next year we'll get to at least uh, a couple of their story arcs. Um, the comments section kind of wrapped up with a, a little conversation between Gold Dragon, Siskoid, and Gothos Mansion, all talking about when the term Dark Knight started, referring to Batman. Um, they they kind of had a couple of different ideas, but Siskoid pointed out that it actually started as far back as Batman issue one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just yep. It's uh, just uh, Frank Miller just dusted it off. I mean, Dark Knight Detective was used in the seventies, but Dark Knight itself had been left abandoned until Miller came along. So there you go. And I want to say that was used to describe the Shadow or, or one of those other pulp characters before Batman. So I think probably in Batman they just lifted it from that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know that for sure, but I think I think I've heard that before. Oh yeah, man. I mean, and, and I mean, honestly, I mean, and this is nothing against Bill Finger. I'm so glad Bill Finger's finally getting credit mm-hmm. for co-creating Batman. But honestly, in the early days, he lifted just almost just as much as uh, Bob Kane did, uh, because I mean, the case of the Chemical Syndicate is a total lift off of uh, it's either Doc Savage or a shadow tale i can't remember which one but they were lifting those stories left and right not just the artwork and not just you know not just uh, batman's famous rooftop stance being copied off hal foster's uh tarzan or anything like no the stories were too so yeah it, yeah it, it, could, it definitely could have been a uh, uh, uh another name for the shadow no, no doubt <laughs> And that's going to be this one. Uh, next episode will drop in early October. And for the seasonal theme, uh, I'm thinking we're going to do a double feature of Night of the Stalker and Night of the Reaper. So we're going to get another Steve Englehart story uh, with Alfredo Alcala, I think, is the artist on that one? Uh, uh, Sal Amendola. Oh, Sal Amendola. Wrong, wrong yeah. three-syllable. <laughs> Sorry, <Dave. laughs> yeah. Sal Amendola, you're right. Um, and then uh, uh, some uh, Adams and O'Neill on the other one. Yeah. Smiling faces sometimes pretend to be your friend. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. Smiling faces. Smiling faces sometimes They don't tell the truth Smiling faces Smiling faces Tell lies And I got proof Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. 
can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Sometimes, hey, they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces, smiling faces tell lies. And I've got food. Hey, your enemy won't do you no harm. Cause you know where he's coming from. Don't let the handshake and the smile fool ya. Sometimes they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces.